there's an adventure on every map. So it doesn't really matter what map you've got. You know, there's, a, there's, there's just untold sort of adventures awaiting within that map, wherever the map is. And um, so, so maps, I think, for me, are, are really essential things because they are kind of the passport, really, to adventure. You know, adventure racing is pretty feral, and uh, you know a lot of modern, modern or normal rules don't apply to adventure races. I just basically just stood at the buffet and just started eating. I was just picking up food and eating it. Welcome to the Eat for Endurance podcast. My name is Claire Shorenstein, and I'm a registered dietitian and running coach based in New York City. My goal for this podcast, aside from having fun, of course, is to demonstrate that there is no one-size-fits-all style of eating. Rather, there are many different pathways towards individualized health and sports performance. I explore this in my athlete nutrition profiles, as well as in interviews with fellow dietitians on their areas of expertise. Today's guest is a legend in the sport of adventure racing, having won more events with this team than any other in the history of the sport. I'm of course speaking of New Zealand native Nathan Fave. His most recent win was at the world's toughest race, Eco Challenge Fiji, which my husband and I binged on Amazon Prime over the summer. The documentary has been out long enough that hopefully I haven't spoiled the ending for you, but if you haven't watched the series yet, please hit pause and go watch it right now and come back to this episode afterwards. Nathan is an all-around incredible athlete and leader. He has been a full-time or semi-professional athlete for over 20 years and has accomplished many impressive athletic feats, including captaining the New Zealand adventure racing team to six world championship victories. But it's important to note that he wears many hats. He has three teenage kids. He runs several businesses, including organizing and directing sporting events. He is a professional outdoor consultant, and his career background is in outdoor education and adventure tourism. He is 48 years old and still crushing it along with his teammates. This is another long episode, just be warned. He has such an interesting story to tell, so much incredible advice to share from his decades of experience in the sport. And of course, I had a billion questions all about adventure racing and nutrition. So I hope you enjoy this episode, all two plus hours of it. So without further ado, please welcome Nathan Fave to the show. Nathan, welcome to the Eat for Endurance podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for uh, making contact. It's always always fun to chat about uh, about these sort of things. Yeah, so you just got back from an early morning run over there in New Zealand. Did you eat breakfast already? I know it's morning your time. I have had a small amount of breakfast when I got home from my run, but uh, I reckon after this I'll be due for another round. What did you eat? <laughs> a very small bowl of cereal uh, so far. Okay. Yeah, my kids had just been through the kitchen uh, on their way, basically before they went to school. So uh, we did have some fresh strawberries in the in the cupboard yesterday, but I noticed they were all gone this morning. Oh man! And you have three teenage kids, right? So I imagine food just like goes in and out of your house. Uh, It does. Yep. No, it does go through pretty quick. And right now, there's actually five. um, There's a couple of friends staying here, so there was five teenagers. Oh my goodness! Yeah. (laughs) I think I could be just yeah. be grateful that I had had any food at all. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so now that some of the Eco Challenge buzz has died down and you've at least partially recovered from your podcast fatigue, I'm I'm really happy <laughs> that you know I have the opportunity to share your your whole athletic and nutrition story today and and to really dive into the amazing sport of adventure racing, which 
I know not everybody knows about, but it certainly is becoming a bit more mainstream now that Amazon released, um, you know, the world's toughest race eco challenge Fiji, which is a great thing, especially for people like you who, you know, you really are kind of an ambassador of the sport and such a legend of the sport. Um, but for me, you know, this podcast is, of course, about eating for endurance um, and adventure racing. I think you could really argue is the epitome of endurance sport. You know, for again, for any of my listeners who aren't familiar with adventure racing, it's a team sport and teens are typically racing for up to a week. They're engaging in many different types of sports. You don't even always know what you're doing all the time ahead of time. And, you know, you don't have much time to sleep or rest. So it is obviously very taxing on the body. Uh, nutrition is always important to successful sports performance, but the, I think the sheer volume and logistics of nutrition planning and adventure racing uh, just puts sports nutrition considerations on a completely different level. So we're definitely gonna get into all that today and how you and your teammates have just absolutely dominated the sport for so long. But first, I want to dig into your nutrition roots. So what was the food scene in your, like, in your house growing up in New Zealand? Um, maybe you can kind of just paint the picture and share with me like what you remember about food growing up. Sure, sure. So, so I, I, was, I was born in uh, 1972. So I guess you know, my childhood was really through the 1970s and 80s. And I, th I think back then, and I'm, I'm, I guess it was the same in the states. Um, yeah, this wasn't the same level of processed food as there is around now. So, my memory of growing up was my parents used to grow a lot of their own vegetables. So, a large part of the vegetables that we ate um, were essentially grown in our yard. And mm. I think around then too. Um, you know, New Zealand's always been a producer of of meat, uh, mainly mainly beef and lamb, um, and then obviously there's quite a lot of seafood here as well. Just being being an island, and and so my memory of growing up, um, you know, for the first really until I was a young adult, was pretty basic food. Like in New Zealand, that the phrase they kind of term for the olden day, well, it's not really olden day, but the food of that time was sort of meat and three veg. And that was a that was a pretty standard meal for Kiwi families is that, you know, you had meat of some sort, a portion of meat and three different vegetables. And that was really what was on your plate. And and that would be very much the the house I grew up in. Uh, mm. A lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of dairy here as well. So uh, milk was kind of, you know, we drank a lot of milk mm -hmm. and uh, cheese and and things, and but there, yeah, this wasn't, I guess, the convenience food like there like there is today. So it was pretty. I sort of think back then that our, our diet was, I consider it to be fairly healthy um, and good quality sort of food, and and not a huge amount of treats. Like my mother and my my um, my nana, my grandmother used to do quite a lot of home baking, so. You know, if we were eating cakes and cookies and things, there were there was stuff that was produced, you know, baked at home. Um, even bread, you know, was quite often baked at home. So mm -hmm. that's quite big changes. So uh, yeah, I, I think our, our our food was our that, that that was that was pretty much what I grew up on. That's awesome. And you're of course half Samoan. Is there anything like? Is there you know? Does your Samoan heritage contribute at all to the types of foods you grew up eating, or any like your approach mm. to food nutrition now yeah definitely definitely does because um maybe not so much my approach to nutrition but certainly in the foods that we eat 
So interestingly, um, after World War II, uh, and, I, and I can't actually remember the exact um, kind of reasoning behind it, but in the Pacific Islands, a lot of the, I think a lot of it was sort of um, to do with sort of global strategy, but a lot of countries started um, sort of forming colonies in the Pacific Islands. So where, where my father's from, Samoa, uh, America actually essentially purchased um, one of the Northern Island groups, which is which is now <laughs> fairly basically named called American Samoa. So that's that's actually a that's actually part of the United States. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese actually sort of moved into Western Samoa, which is kind of an independent country. So I didn't actually know it at the time when I grew up. I, I actually grew up eating a lot of food that I thought was Samoan food, but it's actually very Chinese um, influence. So in Samoa, there's a lot of rice, there's a lot of stir fry, there's a lot of noodle dishes, and there's a lot of spice used. And as a kid, I just thought that was what, because my father would make this food. And I just thought, oh, that's um, traditional Samoan food, but it's not at all. It was, mm. um, it was the, the Chinese kind of brought their food and blended it with you know, what was already naturally in Samoa and created this kind of slightly unique uh, blend of sort of Asian Pacific kind of food. So I guess how that's changed my eating now is that I grew up eating quite a lot of spicy food. Um, so I've always enjoyed, you know, strong flavours and that Asian style kind of uh, spice. Oh, okay. And do you, do you consider yourself to have a strong stomach? Because I know with exercise, sometimes really strong spice doesn't always sit well, but maybe it doesn't bother you. No, no, it doesn't bother me. No, I, yeah, I do consider myself to have pretty strong, strong stomach in that regard. Like even globally around the world, I'm pretty resilient to, you know, I, I seem to be able to just pick up eating what the locals are eating and, and have almost never had any problems with that. That is very, very awesome. That's like, almost a superpower, I feel like, as an athlete <laughs> traveling all over the world with God knows what going on in the food. <laughs> no, that is yeah. that is awesome. I'm sure that's helped uh, your success to some degree. Um, uh, yeah. So you, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned on other podcasts that you were active and adventurous from a very young age. And I do think growing up in New Zealand and especially on the South Island, which I've heard you speak about is just being, you know, just having this kind of culture of uh, physical activity and ex- you know exploration, adventure, all that stuff. And there's so many places to explore. But I mean, was it common to be engaging in all these different types of sports from a very young age as you did, or did you just have a particularly strong passion for the outdoors? Would you say? Yeah, it, it certainly wasn't common uh, when I grew up. Like a lot of those sports, a lot of a lot of adventure sport in the sort of early 90s or late 80s, early 90s was quite. I wouldn't say elitist, but it was it was pretty difficult to know how to actually get involved in those things. There wasn't the pathways that are available now. Mm-hmm. And and just finding out about that stuff, you know, I mean, obviously now it's so easy to kind of do some research, you know, five minutes online and you, you know, you can probably find out if there's a local club for just about anything that you might be interested in. But back then it was almost quite sort of secretive trying to find out how you go rock climbing or how you go whitewater kayaking or how you do these different things. So I was, I sort of had an interest in it. Like I, I, as a teenager, I developed, definitely developed an interest in, in sort of endurance and 
I guess I've always, it, it, I always have had, looking back, I've always had a very adventurous kind of spirit. Like, I always wanted to explore things. And, um, yeah, so that, that that's essentially, New, New Zealand is very well set up for that. But um, but it wasn't easy at that time. Like, like certainly, certainly now it is. But, but back mm-hmm. then, yeah, and, and I think also the family I came from, you know, my family were, we sort of recreated in the outdoors, but not kind of the stuff that I wanted to do. Um, what did you want to do? I, I wanted to do the that, you know, what I perceived to be the fairly extreme stuff. You know, like I, you know, I was aware that people climbed mountains, um, you know, and travelled across glaciers and kayaked off waterfalls and, and things like that. But I just didn't really know how, how, how you did that stuff or how you got involved or where you learned those things. Um, but I just yeah. I had interest in it, you know. I'd sort of pick up an, an adventure magazine and be quite amazed about you know what some people were sort of getting up to in their spare time. What's your earliest memory in terms of like, oh, I want to do that? Like, was it picking up that magazine or was it something else? Oh, there's definitely definitely the adventure magazine was quite a source of inspiration for me um, because it was an easy way of just finding out about what was actually happening within the country. This where It was called the New Zealand Adventure Magazine. It's still around today, actually. But I, I think probably one moment that I definitely remember quite clearly is I was, I was hiking with some friends. We just did a, a weekend hiking trip. And we were probably about a day, no, we were, we were a day's hiking into, on, a, on a particular trail in a national park. And we got up in the morning and we were sort of just having breakfast and we were, we were basically camping right next to the trail. And then to our surprise, about 50 or 60 trail runners ran past and <laughs> that, there, was a, there was a trail running event on that we had no idea that, that it was on or that there was, that even existed. And um, when I got out from that trip, I, I kind of, asked around and tried to find out more about what those people were doing because that was that interested me like I thought well that's that's um that that looks pretty pretty cool and it turns out they were doing they were actually doing a mountain triathlon so they were running through the mountains and then they were going to be kayaking across a lake uh, and then and then biking back over some hills back to where they sort of started from and Mm. uh, once once I found that out I was like, oh, I want to do that. that. That's something I'd like to do. And, yeah, so around that time, there was quite a few quite influential things that all sort of happened in a short period of time that kind of set me on the pathway, I guess, that I've, I've been on ever since. How old were you then when you, you went on that camping trip with your friends? I would have been 16, I think, 16, maybe 17. Okay. and And this was around the time that, um, and again, I've, I've heard you speak about this or, or read it somewhere else that I guess you kind of hit a little bit of a rough patch as a teenager. Or you were smoking or doing drugs or something along those lines. And I don't know if your parents put you in this program or what kind of happened there. Maybe you can speak to that. But you got put in an outdoor program for at-risk youth. But the silver lining there is that it really put you on this trajectory to becoming the, invent- you know, the incredible venture racer and outdoorsman that you are today. So maybe you can share a little bit about this program, how long it was. Like, um, I'm not sure if the what you described just now was kind of after you entered this program or, or kind of what happened there. Yeah, it was all around the same time. Uh, yeah, so 
That's right. So as a, as a teenager, I, and, and this is, you know, I didn't really know it at the time, but, um, you know, I've, I've always just had that kind of risk-taking, adventurous exploration kind of interest or spirit. And, yeah, when I was when I was younger, when I was a younger teenager, you know, me and my friend group, we just got up to mischief. And it was all pretty harmless stuff, really. But, yeah, yeah we, were, we were drinking, you know, way too much for our age and, and just smoking marijuana and just getting up to mischief. But, you know, we did that because it was exciting. And, you know, we, we knew we weren't allowed to be doing that. And, and, and with that, there was the whole... Um, you know, just that. I, I guess that whole thing, the whole excitement, adventure of 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 hiding something. You're not allowed. You know, you, we don't want to be caught doing these things, and and uh, we had to source this stuff, and and that often led to, you know, not sourcing it um, in legal ways and things. So we, we got into mm-hmm. a bit of mischief, and then, um, and then I I basically got offered a choice as a as a 16 year old we actually did start to get in some trouble you know like we were getting older and, and it was becoming a little bit less harmless what we were doing and mm-hmm. I I essentially just got offered I was part of a group of boys that basically we said look you guys you know we were identified as at-risk youth what we were doing wasn't really that helpful wasn't wasn't helpful to society and sure. um and, and, and yeah, they, we just got offered a choice, really. And and one of the options of of for us to to do was was to go and do this outdoor program, which I, for memory, was twelve weeks. And the alternative to that was basically go and you know just do community work for twelve weeks. And um, so for me, I think for some of the boys at the time, going and doing a twelve week outdoor program was kind of seen as something that would they really didn't want to do. But for me, it was like, well, that'd be amazing because I already did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I already had an interest in doing that stuff, so it was kind of like, well, that's this is this is easy for me. I'll definitely go and do this program. And um, yeah, it was during that program that you know we, I basically stopped drinking alcohol on that course and started a lot more being a lot more focused about. Um, you know what I wanted to do. Like fitness was a big part of the program. Like we would run just about every day, and and um, yeah, they, obviously they encouraged healthy living. You know, no no alcohol, drug, alcohol abuse, etc. And mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I just excelled at that course. It was just perfect timing for me. Like, I guess I was smart enough to know that the, the path I was on wasn't really my future. It was just a bit of fun, really, until I could sort of figure something else out. And uh, once I got onto that program. Uh, you know the tutors were were awesome and sort of I, I'd left school uh, at that point and uh, I still had one year of my school education to go and so they encouraged me to go back to school and you know study for college and did just kind of sort myself out really you know they're like mm. you yeah and, and and that's pretty much what happened um, I sort of completed the course and sort of, I guess, got into the outdoors in a big way and went back and finished my education and, and then sort of, and then, and then actually did go on to college. Um, and then yeah. and by then I was doing so much sport that, you know, that any idle time I had was was spent, you know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess my wife will say, and this has been said over and over again throughout my life, that I do have um, somewhat of a 
sort of addictive personality. I don't have a lot of moderation in the things I do. So when I choose to do something, it's it is it is at a fairly fairly intense level. I think. Um, yeah, and so, I mean, wouldn't you say that that that's kind of a, a running theme throughout many of these types of sports, not just adventure racing, but you look mm-hmm. at ultra running or Ironman. I mean, any of these things. I mean, these are intense situations and particularly I mean adventure racing and we'll talk about some of the extreme <laughs> situations you can get into um and you think about all of the um recovering you know alcoholics or drug addicts or I mean you clearly were I think what it sounds like what you're explaining is kind of like I mean not necessarily a typical teenage stuff but to some level right I mean I think all of us as teenagers got up to no good at some point yeah, yeah um, exactly. but there but there are obviously people who had like really serious addictions later in life and they you know end up sobering up and getting into another pretty extreme thing um mm. but yeah I feel like you have to have that streak in you to some degree otherwise you would be scared to do some of the things that you kind of dive right into right yeah, I think so. And I, I'm not even sure if it's so much fear or being scared of it. I think I think what it lends, I think that, <laughs> I think what that personality lends itself to is is to be able to endure, you know, not normal levels of things. So mm-hmm. if you're kind of used to operating at one end of a continuum or a spectrum at whatever you do, you kind of need that. In some ways, to to succeed, I think at any endurance sport, or certainly an ultra endurance sport like event racing, and some of the other ones you mentioned, because you do have to go and train, you know, kind of kind of crazy hours at at some point, and yeah. just 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 be able to kind of go and do stuff that most people would just find really quite odd, um, but you but you find that normal. So um, yeah, I guess that's yeah. <laughs> For sure. Um, let's explore nutrition at this time of your life, because, you know, you kind of downplay a little bit or maybe you don't downplay, but we're, we haven't really gotten into it so much. But when you're 16, 17, it's not like you were just like, oh, yeah, we did some running every day. We did a few miles here and there. Like you ran your first marathon when you were 16 and you even ran like not in your first attempt, but I don't know if it was like your second or third. But like at 16, you ran a sub hour, three hour marathon. Is that right? Yeah, only just. But yes. <laughs> Uh, only just you know what you could have run you know one second below that it counts I mean you're 16 you're running fast you're training hard you did a triathlon at 17 you know this again this is like pretty serious training and as you mentioned you were very focused and uh, clearly you you channeled all that energy from all the other stuff you were doing into some pretty amazing athletic feats so like what did your nutrition look like at this time did it change at all um were you living at this program by the way or was it kind of like a part-time thing and you went back home the when we were on the course we were we were uh, it was residential so we lived on site for the 12 weeks and where the outdoor center is it's actually not far from where i live now actually Uh, but um no we lived on site and yeah i guess that was because there was some strict fairly strict rules around what we couldn't couldn't do and Mm -hmm. um yeah and then and then yeah, so I think pretty much when I so I left school when I was sixteen and left home when I was sixteen, but then I had, and I had a year off. So the year where I was kind of sixteen, seventeen years old, I was largely out of home doing trying to trying to do my own thing. But then after that program, um, the tutors sort of strongly encouraged me to go back and finish my education. 
so by 18, I was actually moved, I'd moved, I was living back in my, with my parents and, and went back and finished school. So, um, so I guess nutritionally around that time, uh, it was still pretty much what I sort of mentioned before about, um, you know, just that kind of normal, at that time, you know, just, just the sort of the Kiwi <laughs> meat sure, and three sure. and, and And I think, I think back then junk food, I mean, it, it wasn't the fast food like there is now. I mean, we, our only fast food at that time was, <clears throat> was um, quite, it's still popular in New Zealand, just fish and chips, which is just battered and fried fish and, sure, sure. and, and fries and chips. And, you know, I, I remember, I remember back then that, there was just starting to be kind of health awareness raised around people not eating too much fat, but sugar wasn't really an issue. Like I don't think back then that our sugar intake was anything problematic. You know, like we weren't, I guess the other thing is we didn't have much money either. Like I never, as a kid, I never really remembered having sort of money in my pocket that often. So, you know, you didn't, you sort of went back home to eat and, um, yeah, we weren't we weren't sort of buying up, you know, massive bottles of soda pop and things like you see kids doing these days. Sure. Uh, but what about when I mean specifically to the training though? You know, you're yeah. training for the marathon. Like these are long efforts. You're doing long runs, I imagine. You're doing you know training for the triathlon. Were you taking anything with you on the run? Were you, you know, doing anything differently there? I mean, you must have been eating more. I imagine you must have been hungrier as you became more active. No. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So. And that's how I'd probably sum it up, as I, is, is that I just was eating more, um, sure. not necessarily anything different. But I know my mother was saying that, you know, when I was, when I moved back home and I was eating more, like it was just, that was a significant thing. Like, so mealtime, she would just sort of cook more of the same thing, knowing okay. that I was just basically burning through a lot more um, calories. And and I think I probably just started snacking a bit more too, you know, just sort of during the during the afternoons and and things, just coming coming home and mm-hmm. and just um you know having another a, a small meal before I sort of head out training and things. But in terms of sports nutrition and things like no, I I um you know the, the, I was learning a lot. Like I I really didn't know much. And the day I broke three hours in the marathon, like um had I known had I known probably a few. <laughs> Had I known what I know now about sports nutrition, I probably would have run, you know, a sub 240 that day um, quite mm. comfortably. Like, I think I was fit enough and fast enough for that. But I, I, you know, I just, I just didn't really know anything about, um, you know, about I just sort of got up that morning and had a small amount of breakfast and then just kind of went and ran the marathon and sort of wondered why towards the end I started to struggle. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah, but, um, totally. Yeah, that was. Uh, um, yeah, I think it's like sign of the times too. But also, you were 16. So <laughs> it's yeah. not like you were necessarily working with coaches or any of that kind of thing. You just kind of went out and did it. Although it sounds yeah, like yeah. you had some good mentors at the program that you were at, and they were doing similar things. But um, okay, interesting. So yeah. let's move on to kind of the next chapter of your life, mountain biking, which is. I guess your first really truly competitive sport. Um, I, were you like you were kind of you were a professional mountain biker? Would you consider yourself that? I mean, I think you oh, were. Right? Yeah, semi-professional. I think towards the end of my career. So, yeah, I was okay. I was in the New Zealand team uh, for five years and qualified for the Olympics in '96 and yeah. travelled around. Um, yeah. So yeah. 
yeah, on the World okay. Cup and things. But yeah, not not I wouldn't not by today's standards, not professional, but semi semi professional sure. would be. Yeah. But still, you were quite competitive. Um, and at this time, I mean, as you were learning more and doing more things, and obviously biking is like a whole different thing to running. Um, any, yeah, any kind of learning, significant learning moments, nutrition, any changes, or again, was it just more of the same? Um, were you still living at home at the time? Were you, did you have kind of, you're off on your own? What was going on here? Sure. So, yeah, so the first year I, um, of mountain bike racing, I was still living at home, just finishing my my school education. And then I was away for a couple of years uh, studying at university or at college. And and that was uh, a lot uh, around around my mountain biking career. There was a lot of nutritional um, changes or exploration, I guess is probably a better word. So, you know, and it was during mountain biking that really in New Zealand, these things started to show up. Like during my mountain bike career, it was the first time we, in New Zealand anyway, that we got um, kind of gels like sports gels mm-hmm. and you know I remember when these things first came out and you know all the riders talking about oh you take one of these during the race and yeah you turn you into a superhero type thing <laughs> and uh, and the first power bars came out I don't know if you ever can remember those or had those but they oh were, yeah I remember they power almost, bars. <laughs> they almost took probably a thousand calories to try and chew the thing oh but, yeah seriously uh, <laughs> yeah unless they were hot so, so we started experimenting, and, and and it was very competitive. Mountain biking, or well, mountain biking at that level, has always been competitive, but well, it was probably more competitive now than it was then. But we were always looking for an edge, and so by now I'm sort of in my twenties, and I was studying uh, physical education at Otago University, and uh, I was living in a flat with a couple of other mountain bike racers and cyclists. And we were we we were doing a lot of things to try and figure out how we could go faster on our bikes. And so, you know, there was the there was the stuff coming out around energy gels, uh, power bars, electrolyte sort of you know there was supplements. As all this stuff was starting to kind of come up, um, this is in the early nineties now. And and because we were phys ed students, we were also interested in a number of different things. So we were. In our flat, we were actually trialing quite a few different sort of, I guess, diets or eating eating patterns, and um, we tried a number of different things over a few years, and uh, yeah, just just kind of experimenting really to see what what would make us go faster or have more energy or train better and and things. Mm-hmm. So your nutrition started to become something we took a took a big interest in around that time. Yeah, it, what was like? pretty helpful or what was successful and what was like a total fail in terms of nutrition of what you tried well, i think i think things that were kind of i mean we probably never, in between <laughs> yeah we probably, we probably never did something long enough to give it a fair trial but i don't know if you've ever heard of a book called i'm pretty sure it's called strategy strategies of champions mm-hmm. and it was essentially a reversal eating kind of plan so and that there was in any of these books, as I'm sure you know, any of these sort of nutrition books you pick up, they'll they'll quote some super athlete that's on this program. Sure. And um, you know, is achieving these great things. So as young, impressionable cyclists and mountain bikers, you know, like a, all we needed to know was there was one athlete somewhere in the world that was succeeding on this program, and that was good enough for us. 
So, um, but this reversal eating program was basically essentially what exactly what it says. It was basically get up in the morning, have your dinner, and then at <laughs> lunchtime. Have I was time, like, what does that mean? Reversal eating. Yeah. Okay, and you got it. And then at bedtime have um have you kind of you know your breakfast and then go to sleep and and the theory behind it kind of makes sense when you're when you're kind of 18 years old and sort of a sponge for information because it basically says you know you want your biggest meal um when you're going to be burning all that energy so you should get up and have your meat and three veggies and you know have a big steak and vegetables for breakfast or something and then that'll give you the energy for the day. So you go out training and then obviously lunch is lunch. And then at nighttime, you know, when you go to sleep, well, you don't really need much food when you're sleeping. So you might as well just have a little bit of cereal and a bit of fruit and yogurt and then, you know, go to bed on a, on a light stomach. So we tried that for a while, but um, no, we didn't, none of us thought that that was particularly good. And (laughs) then we tried, um, then there was a book that came out that was called Fit for Life. And Mm -hmm. we kind of, we read that and, and that was kind of, the opposite that was basically like pretty much fast until midday um mm. have some fruit but and, and at the time it was also veget- it was promoting vegetarianism and we were keen for anything like we were like well if it's going to make us go faster we'll, we'll, we'll try it and um we actually found that worked pretty well that system um mm. where we just basically eat as much fruit as you want until midday and we would often train in the mornings and then, and then you pretty much just eat fairly healthy vegetarian diet for the rest of the day, and and obviously they promote all the other good things like, you know, avoid pre- preserved food and avoid fatty foods and drink plenty of water. Which we now know, yeah, that was like so nineties. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and um, and that actually worked pretty well. But I I I and I did that for quite a while until um, I went and got a dental checkup, and my dentist was like, "Man, your teeth have really deteriorated lately." Oh, and he's like, well, yeah. change your diet. And I was going, so I only eat fruit in the mornings until sort of midday and stuff. He goes, oh, it's, that's too hard. And then, and then like most of those things, they kind of just fad out of it. And then we also tried um, being vegan for a while, just no, no vegetarian and no, um, you know, obviously no dairy and stuff. And, and, and to be fair, to be honest, I actually raced really well um, for about one season as a vegan but i think i was too young and not not managing my diet well enough and um and then i just i just found that i just yeah i just got really fatigued at the end of the season and and didn't it didn't didn't seem to be working for me but i i I, I wouldn't say i was doing it well yeah okay that's really interesting and yeah i mean i think that especially when you're trying to be like a really high performing athlete like you're you really are looking everywhere for an edge of some kind but you know now we know it's not like the fad diets and all that it's like really kind of just like boring sensible advice and making Mm. sure you're eating enough and timing consistently I mean there's so many things to it obviously but um interesting Mm. and so okay so you qualified for the Olympics in 1996 and you won your very first adventure race in 1999 Walk me through kind of what happened between, you know, 1996 and 1999. I mean, you clearly are a jack of all trades when it comes to sport, but what specifically motivated you to leave mountain biking behind and kind of pursue the multi-sport events? Yeah, so I guess a bit of a timeline is, um, so you're right from, you know, obviously I was really into the outdoor stuff. So kayaking, climbing, um, 
you know, mountaineering and, and all, and pretty much anything adventure I was keen on. And then, mm-hmm. and then the competition side of stuff, I started running and ran a few marathons. But as a 16-year-old, marathons are pretty boring. And um, <laughs> and then mountain biking was so exciting because the technology was moving instantly. You know, like, it, like that was a, such an exciting period to be, be a mountain biker. And mountain biking for me as a teenager was exciting. You know, obviously it was, you know, you're doing jumps and skids and, and it's, just, it's just full of gadgets. So it was the perfect sport for kind of young people and so I was like oh, I'm not going to run any more marathons I'm going to go and go I'm going to go and sort of do some mountain biking it's way more interesting and um but I was also in New Zealand we we have a sport here called multi-sport multi-sport which is it's basically triathlon but instead of swim bike run it's kayak bike run and they're mountain-based races rather than urban environments. And we have a really big race here called the Coast to Coast, which goes from one side of the South Island to the other. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that race is a real big deal. It's, um, you know, it's almost an institution in New Zealand. Like, if you haven't done the Coast to Coast, you know, you kind of oh, that's, that's strange. Why, why not? <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I sort of went and did that um, around that period of when I sort of did this course and I ran the marathons and I was sort of getting into mountain biking and I went and did the coast to coast as well. It's kind of, it was just part of all that sort of, for me, just sort of finding out, you know, what, what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And, and I did pretty well. I, I, I did quite well on my first coast to coast. And, and, um, but I decided that um, it'd be something that I come back to. Like I, I thought, oh, the coast to coast, like endurance triathlons, uh, or multi-sport races like that are they're pretty big events, and I and and I was just way more interested in mountain biking as a sole focus. So, so what happened with mountain biking is I I raced mountain bikes pretty competitively from 1990 to 96, and then mm-hmm. it's quite a long story, but it, the short story is is that right at the last minute, like literally a couple of months before the Olympics, I was actually in the states at the time training for the Olympics. They changed mm-hmm. the criteria on on mountain biking it was the first year mountain biking was at was at the olympics it was in atlanta and rather than being a demonstration sport they changed it to being a full medal sport because mountain biking was just growing so fast and america was the home of mountain biking but what that meant was is that because it was a full medal sport that mountain biking then rather than just being a sort of a separate sport of its own it came under a code of cycling so most of the international teams had already set their teams for the Olympics. And so the mm-hmm. only way you could take mountain bikers was by dropping some of your cyclists out, your road cyclists or track uh, cyclists. So what happened in New Zealand was is they were like, well, <laughs> we don't want to do that. Um, we've got all our road and track cyclists all training for the Olympics. It's not really fair on them to tell them that we have to reduce the team to make room for the mountain bikers. So basically, there was myself and the other guy. We were the top two New Zealand mountain bikers at the time. They, they essentially just sent us a fax. <laughs> it was back in those days. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were yeah we were training in Boulder in Colorado, getting ready for the Olympics, and they just were just the fax came through and said, "Sorry, guys, come home." Um, oh, what a bummer! You're not riding the Olympics. And our female mountain biker who qualified, she got to race the Olympics because she was a ro- in the New Zealand road cy- road cycling team as well. But that's the only okay. reason she got to race the mountain bike race. So I guess I was really um, disappointed 
with that. And um, so John and I, the, the number one rider at the time in New Zealand, he was number one, I was number two. We were so gutted that we both quit mountain biking. Wow. <laughs> and um, and for me, I mean, he later, he later, I think he took a year off and then got back into mountain biking. But for me, I was like, oh, well, I'm just going to go and do other stuff. I, I want to go and do the coast to coast and I want to go and do more adventure stuff. And for me, it was just like, oh, well, I gave it a go, sort of achieved that goal of getting to the Olympics, but didn't get to race. But I'm not going to wait another four years. I'm going to go and do mm-hmm. some other stuff. So. So, yeah, I basically went back to multi-sport. I went back doing coast-to-coast and things for a few years, and then my, my goal was to, yeah, to basically, you know, get into adventure racing. Yeah, awesome. And um, so so now we're getting into kind of your long and ongoing adventure racing career, which I say, oh. I mean, you're still in the peak of it. I mean, you just won this huge thing. So, and you're still doing stuff. So, um, and you're, what, you're 48 now, right? Is that right? 48, 49? I am, I am 48 and I, I do not feel like I'm at peak, peak of, I, I think my team is, um, is at the peak of things, but me as a, as an individual, I, I couldn't claim that anymore. Well, but you add you add so much more than just the physical aspects of things, right? I mean, your your decades of experience. I mean, you've been. When did adventure racing even start? Like it, it didn't start that long before you entered it, right? Is that? Oh, or am I getting that wrong? Yeah, it was 1989. Uh, but that that's that the very me. first adventure race ever. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Which okay. New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so New Zealand's like the home of adventure racing and you pretty much like grew up with it. Um, and you've been on that whole ride through, you know, throughout the whole thing. And, but, you know, one of the things that I really want to talk about, and of course, from your whole experience, but again, you're like the best person to talk to you about this, <laughs> given you've been in this sport for so incredible, for almost 20 years now, uh, or no, yeah. over 20 years. Um, but yeah, so I want to talk about like the general challenges and logistics of adventure racing, um, specifically when it comes to fueling. And just myself not being like I'm, you know, superficially uh, you know, familiar with adventure racing. And of course, I watch the Eco Challenge and I've interviewed other adventure racers like Travis Macy and um, and us and um, Marshall Ulrich uh, was yeah. on the show as well. But um, so I, I know some, you know, some things, but I really wanted to get into like the nitty gritty details because I just have a billion questions. Yeah. So first, prepping for these big multi-day multi-sport events, especially the international ones. I mean, that must be such an ordeal in terms of just planning. And I mean, you have the training for it, obviously, but there are a lot of things you don't even know. Like you don't necessarily and you correct me if I'm wrong here, please. But you don't necessarily know. Um, you don't know the route always. You don't know it in advance. You don't know all of the sports. Like there are some core sports. What is it? Mountain biking and kayaking, trekking. But like you don't know all of the sports that are involved. And then, of course, from the nutritional standpoint, I mean, there's so much plan that goes into nutrition generally for any event that you do, but you're not sure how long it'll take. Um, you're constantly wet in some of these cases. Like, I mean, I know it depends on where you are at, but you have to make sure all your stuff is really protected. Your gear is protected. It just seems like this huge, I don't know. I mean, clearly you're so experienced, it's not so daunting. But can you just talk us through some of the prep that goes into, like, like the actual packing and planning, um, especially from the nutrition standpoint? Yeah, I think it is, a, it is, it is kind of tricky. 
in some ways, I guess, for me to, I mean, I can answer the question, but I can totally see that, um, you know, my answer is, is going to be very, very different to <laughs> so many other people. Because simply like, like you sort of alluded to, like I've been event racing now for 20 years, but added to that, like outside of adventure racing, um, what we do for recreation is essentially just forms of adventure racing it, itself. So, so certainly for me, getting prepared for a race now, and it, it is it is a fairly normal and fairly simple task. I mean, it's just a matter of sort of going through a checklist and making sure that we've got all the required things, really. Um, you know, and you learn, I guess you learn from experience that you want to invest the time before you go somewhere and make sure that you've definitely got everything because some countries we go to, if you're missing some gear, then that can be really quite difficult to to get it where, wherever you may be. But um, so, yeah, so going, whenever we go to a race, we, we know what the disciplines are going to be uh, and the okay. organisers will send us a gear list which is usually about four or five pages long and it says wow. oh, this is this is the compulsory gear this is what you need to bring and, it, and it'll be set into zones so it'll be like this is what you need for hiking this is what you need for mountaineering for kayaking for rafting inline skating horse trekking caving sailing whatever it may be so we have to source all that gear and and, th- and that it's not that difficult if you know ahead of time what you need. Um, most of the time, collectively between my teammates, we have that equipment. Um, but sometimes we have to go and buy specific gear. And then the next challenge is actually getting it to the country we're racing in. And um, so I guess in terms of, of the gear list, it, it's, it's usually laid out pretty clearly for us what we need. It's probably more the stuff that we take that is not mandatory that is probably the more more important stuff. So they're the things that as a team and as athletes, we've gone, well, this is not on the gear list, but I'm no way I'm racing without this. You know, this is stuff that (laughs) that we definitely need to make sure we've got. So added, you know, whatever climatic region we're racing in, like our team will kind of take some extra stuff, equipment or products that we know we will we'll need in this environment. And, and a lot of that does, a lot of that would be nutritional things, mm-hmm. especially, especially in the heat, especially in a hot climate. Mm. Um, so, so nutritionally is an interesting one because the easiest place for us to race, as you can imagine, is in New Zealand. And, sure. And, and the reason, one of the things that's the easiest thing here for us is the fact that we can go into a supermarket a few days before the race and buy exactly what we want um, because we know <laughs> we know exactly what we want right down to the type of brand of cookie that you want to eat whereas we can be very restricted sometimes on how much we can take on an airplane and mm-hmm. some races we go to we we can't take any food from New Zealand or practically nothing really no because it'll just work out way too expensive. Like, it's just, there's no, you know, there's... You mean because of baggage limits or why? Yeah, 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 baggage limits. And then... Wow. Yeah, so the, the like, like if we fly, if we're flying, I've done some racing in um, Abu Dhabi, so you fly in there on Emirates, or Emiratis, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Uh-huh. And 
they uh, they are very strict with their baggage. So I think they allow 20 kilos per person, and then and then per, and then because they don't want people to take any more than that, the per kilo charge over that is just ridiculous. Just so basically people won't do it. I can't remember what it is, but it's like you know fifty dollars for a kilo above above or whatever it is. So basically, it means you know take some food is going to cost you thousands of dollars for food. So so the what what ends up happening is is that we often, I'd say fifty percent of the time we race, we have to source the food that we're going to race with from the country we're in. We have to buy the food on location, and that can Wait, be can really. I, I'm gonna can I pause you one sec? Um, we but don't you like can't. I mean, I know for, I mean, maybe it's different for the international flights, but I always felt like it would be like $50 for an extra bag, or are you guys just like maxing out all the extra bags already? Is that like, yeah. it was like on top yeah. of that, you mean? <laughs> okay. Yeah, because we, like you were just traveling with crazy amounts of stuff and you were bikes and all your gear, I imagine. So I guess exactly. you have to prioritize the gear over the food is what you're saying. That's right. Dead right. So okay. yeah, by the time we take, um, you know, our paddling gear, so life jackets, helmets, paddles, Mountain bikes, mountain bike tools, spare tire, trekking gear, sleeping gear, tent. I mean, these are the essential items that we need. Like mm. already, we are over the limit. It, it does depend on where you're flying to, but I guess out of New Zealand, um, <laughs> you know, we don't have all that many options. Um, and and I guess yeah. So it, it does. It, it depends a bit on on where we can go. Sometimes we're lucky we can take more gear and we can just pay the extra bag and that's fine. But sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes we can't. So, so are your sponsors, uh, I mean, these are sponsored things, right? Are your sponsors paying for these things or you have to pay out of pocket? Yeah, they, they will. Our sponsors do pay, but then they, they, I think they're not going to pay. Um, yeah, there was, there is a limit to what they'll pay as well. So they're not going to pay uh, for your New Zealand cookies for like a thousand dollars. Yeah, whatever. exactly. <laughs> Yeah, they're going to go. Sorry, you're just going to have to eat some local food. And and I and to be and I think to be honest, you know, one of the reasons why our team has had long-term sponsors is we we are very sensible with the money, our sponsorship dollar. Like we make it go a long way, and and we yeah. don't want to waste we don't want to waste money either. We just it's just kind of not it's just not who we are. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so no, we just we just make do. If we comp, if we think, I mean, we will take some things, uh, small things, but nutrition-wise, if we know like we're what? not going to, uh, electrolyte tablets, um, mm-hmm. and possibly some gels, but um, or maybe some salt stick products, or look, if we're racing in tropics in the heat, we'll make sure we take the stuff that we want for in the for in the heat, and that that is largely sort of electrolyte powders and and tablets and pills and things, you know, just kind of. Um, yeah yeah around that and then yeah just just some vitamin c sachets sometimes and different things it depends on depends on where we're going and what we think we can get and, and then you know, yeah these days most of the time you can get most things you want but yeah yeah but if you're used to like training on a very specific brand or brands of gels or things um, I mean, again, what I mentioned earlier, it's a really great thing that you have a strong stomach. And I think in a sport like this, part of training is training yourself to have a huge flexibility with nutrition because you just have to, and you yeah. can't, there's so much, thing, there's so many things you can't predict, you know, what happens if 
you you do bring stuff with you, but your bag gets lost or customs takes it away or whatever. Like you can't rely on things happening as planned always. So I think it's yeah. to your largely to your benefit that you have this great flexibility with nutrition. But yeah, I think some of the parts, some of the things I was asking is like, you know, if you're racing for up to seven days or whatever it is, like just the sheer quantity of electrolyte powders and things that you need. I mean, it's a lot like you're nonstop expending energy. I mean, obviously you're stopping to sleep here and there for, you know, some hours, but you need a lot of stuff. So that was okay. So, so on the ground, you're getting there, you're going to a supermarket or a whatever is around kind of thing. Um, and it's not like on the course, they're typically providing water or food or are they? Like a like no, some other race, nothing. No, not it's normally. All, yeah. Normally. Okay. No. Wow. No, you, most of the time you're self-sufficient. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So, like for water, for instance, are you guys just bringing like filtration type stuff or pills or things like that, or what are you doing for water then typically? Yeah. Or it depends. No, exactly that. Yeah. So we have um, we've got pretty good water filters that we can add to our bladder hoses, and then mm-hmm. we've also and then we'll also use uh, purification drops. If um, if we're concerned about the water, the, fil- the filters we've got are pretty good. But if we're wa- if we're concerned about the water quality, we'll we'll put in purification drops as well. Um, now you mentioned Abu Dhabi, and I know you did like a 140 kilometer run or something along those lines there. Like, what do you do about water there? Are there water that, sources that was, anywhere? That is an <laughs> that is an exception. That they actually helicopter water out into the desert. So every okay, I think every for memory every 10 kilometers. We got resupplied three liters of water per person. Okay, good. I was thinking to myself, I'm like, I do not know how that worked. <laughs> there must have been yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good, be, good. Yeah, you had to be pretty careful with that. That was barely, it was, it was only just enough to get you from wow. one water station to the next. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, in terms of gels, like any kind of favorite go-to sports nutrition products you use, whether it's gels or anything else, you mentioned salt stick, any, yeah, any other things, bars, things like that, that you're like, if you are able to take them with you, or if you had to pick a favorite, anything in there? Um, to be honest, I, I think, you know, one thing, and you sort of alluded to it, I think with our team, one thing we're really good at is actually being very adaptable. So mm-hmm. we, you know, we'll just kind of take whatever we can, we're quite happy most of the time to take whatever we can source. Um, we, you know, traditionally we've always kind of like goo gels. If we're going to use gels, goo, the goo ones we've found pretty good. And, mm-hmm. um, but in New Zealand, we've got a company called Pure that make, make gels. And the, we quite like the New Zealand ones because they, they got more fluid in them. So mm. you don't have, a lot of the gels, you have to kind of take the gel at, with water, but the pure yeah. ones we like because you can just take them on their own. Um, yeah, so yeah. They're, they're quite good. But no, we're generally not that fussy about things. Um, and then we've got some pretty good bars in uh, in New Zealand. I, I, we actually really love the um, the few races we've done in the States. We've we've eaten a lot of Lara bars. They're pretty good. Mm-hmm. Those are pretty uh, good. Yeah. yeah the yeah. gel that um, – so you mentioned that pure gel that has more water in it. Um, there's a there's a I think it's a UK company called Science and Sport and that also is kind of I don't know if you've had that one before but it's like oh, a thinner gel but I, I lived in London for a few years and and yeah. when I got into marathoning and kind of longer stuff I I, I too kind of gravitated more towards like the thinner gels than like the really thick ones but yeah, um, yeah. cool yeah. how does and maybe it doesn't but how does your feeling differ if at all between your various sports when racing or when training 
how does the feeling so no, fueling fueling like how does your nutrition differ like your nutrition strategies or the types of things you reach for um again because you're doing so many different sports like how does it like are you always trying to get a certain number of calories in per hour are you just kind of like how does that all work you know and and change from sport to yeah yeah um our team our our team I, i think would be fair to say we don't apply a huge amount of science to um to kind of how we fuel ourselves during the races and, and probably training for that sense. Like I, I think a lot of it for us is just intuition and mm. kind of experience. So, so how we, how we go, so for, let's take eco challenge, for example. So that race was a bit unique because it's not alone, but it's one of the fewer races where we don't actually know the order of the stages or kind of what's happening. But the game they sort of gave us the course from camp to camp. So we only ever really knew what was happening for the next kind of day or so. And then we'd sort of find out what we're going to be doing after that. But most races, we kind of get the whole course the night before the race or the day before the race, and we can plan okay. a bit better. So, but essentially what our team does is, is that we, we kind of have a shopping list. So when we get on location, we know that we want to buy, you know, two kilos of dried fruit, two kilos of nut, salted nuts, you know, one kilo of candy or whatever it is, um, you know, certainly so many kilos of um, corn chips or whatever whatever we decide we're going to kind of eat in that race or what we think we can buy. Mm-hmm. So we go and we, and we actually even know really, we sort of know pretty much um, by how much money we spend as well that if we've got enough food. So we go and buy what we want and then we've got to go, oh, yeah, that's about right. That's kind of, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. – we should be spending sort of, you know, roughly about 800 New Zealand dollars on our food shop. So we convert that and go, oh, yeah, that seems about right. And then what we do is we make up 12-hour um, – we spend a sort of a half a day before the race making up 12-hour food bags. Mm-hmm. And then, so we generally know the race is going to be about 100 hours or 120 hours. So we'll make up sort of a whole lot of 12-hour ration packs, I guess you could say. And then once we get the course, we can then decide that, you know, okay, this trek is the fastest time they reckon is 24 hours. So we go, oh, yeah, that's easy, two 12-hour bags. And then they go, oh, this, this mountain bike ride is going to be, fastest time is going to be 18 hours. So we go, okay, that's one bag plus half a bag. So then we'll kind of empty half the contents out of one of the bags and then go, okay, that's my food for that mountain bike ride. And they might say this kayak stage, for example, was – you know, eight hours. So you might go, okay, well, I'll just take a 12-hour food bag for that and mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. fine, you know, I'll just chuck it in the kayak. But added to that, um, you know, when you're hiking in these races, that is the, that's the chance for you to eat kind of more difficult food. So, well, difficult as in just kind of the practicalities of eating something. So when you're hiking, it's very easy to be walking along with a with a meal, like a prepared meal and a spoon and you know, mm-hmm. just basically spoon feeding yourself a meal or something, or you can, you know, be eating a bag of corn chips or whatever it is. When you're biking, obviously, it's a bit more difficult. So, and then when you're kayaking, it's even more difficult to eat because you're paddling. So, yeah. Yeah. so, so I guess, I guess how we sort of mitigate that is, is that for the kayaking stages, we actually, we actually try and take a lot of pre-prepared food. So, 
if we've got the luxury, we'll take a lot of tear top cans of food, like cans of beans and cans of rice or cans of, you know, any any sort of canned food is fair game, really. And then, and then, so before we go kayaking, what we'll try and do, can you know, cans of fruit are good. Before we get on the water, we'll try and eat as many cans as we can. <laughs> and, oh, my God. <laughs> just, I'm just trying to imagine, like, visually what that looks like. Yeah, like, yeah. It's not pretty. Oh, not God. pretty. And, then, uh, and, and essentially what you're trying to do is have a meal so you don't have to eat for another three or four hours. So you go, right, what, you know, I, I know I've just eaten all this food, so I'm pretty good for a few hours at least. Um, and then you just keep paddling. And then if we've got time, we might make up, um, you know, a lot of the food replacement, liquid replacement meals. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, I don't know if you get it in the States, but there's a product in New Zealand called Ensure. Yep, we and have that. Yeah, so you can either buy it in cans ready. So we'll often buy the pre-made ones and just chuck all them in the kayak. And it's they're actually pretty convenient. Like you can stop paddling for 20 seconds and everyone can scull it, you know, drink drink a couple of those cans real quick and then you can carry on. Or we'll take or we'll take the powder and make three litres of Ensure and have that have that accessible while you're paddling. So you're actually drinking that while you're paddling. Uh-huh. And then on the bike and then on the biking, that's the easiest food to eat while you're biking is is obviously um, bars, gels, bananas, you know, things that you can easily kind of handle with one hand while you're riding. Yeah. Um, what about whitewater rafting? Like, you can't really stop in that. Like, and also with Pat, like, like your hands are full. Like, you're, you can't use your hands, right? So how does it work, like, in whitewater rafting when yeah, I mean, there's, like, part of, I mean, Eco Challenge, I think you were, like, describing like oh that was so much fun and not stressful at all and of course you like like from my perspective as somebody who never has whitewater rafted in my life like I look at that and I'm like that looks so scary and terrifying and dangerous <laughs> like what are you doing yeah. there yeah the, the, some of those things you um like the, the whitewater rafting for example that it's usually never that long like you're not yeah. despite what it may seem on the, the television it's um those stages are probably you know, they're probably generally only two to two, three or four hours, maybe six hours maximum. That's and a long time. You have to eat and drink in that time. Yeah, but if you <laughs> eat quite a lot before you start the rafting, uh-huh. you know, you, and you've got a couple of, like, sports bars in your pocket, it's um, if someone's hungry, it's no trouble just to stop paddling, quickly eat a bar, and then carry on paddling again. Or okay. or we may even, if, if it's a long, if it's a really long section, we may just take a bag of, like I said before, just of canned food, like meal, whole meals. Mm-hmm. And we may actually all stop rafting for like two minutes, just pull over to the side of the river oh, and, okay. and, and then eat, eat, have a decent meal. And, and our philosophy and our team is, is that the food you eat on one stage is, is not really to get you through that stage. It's, it's, actually, it's actually preparing you for the following stage. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. so, so, Often on a rafting section, you might go, well, this is not that hard. I mean, the river's actually taking us down. We are paddling, but it's not that easy. But after this, we've got a massive hiking stage. So sure. it's really important for us to fuel up now so that once we exit the raft, we're prepared for the next stage. Yeah. And the other things that I remember seeing on Eco, I mean, we'll get into specifically the Eco Challenge stuff in a bit, but um, the other two things that came to mind were like, you did the rope section in the dark or the, whatever the something, Vuya Falls or it was called. And um, and then also swimming in those cold lakes. And I was, again, these aren't necessarily short efforts. So I imagine you have to be like drinking and eating. I guess on the ropes, you could probably just like sit back for a second and, or what do you, yeah, I don't know. Talk me through those two things. 
Yeah, a lot of the time, a lot of that time, those things we will actually because I think I mean it probably goes without saying, but our team is very good. We're all very disciplined at make and nutritionally looking after ourselves in a race. Sure. And so a lot of that stuff will just it wouldn't even be spoken about. Like as we're getting ready for the ropes, people will just be eating, grazing, just getting as much food in as they can because we all know that exactly what you said that once we're on the ropes. It's not going to be that easy to, um, you know, to eat. But there's also there is also opportunities, and and if you're hungry, you'll find time to quickly have something to eat. You know, like you, the way the ropes work is they're often stages. So you might go up the ropes, and you might be busy for twenty or thirty minutes, but then you'll get off one rope, and then there might be a short walk, and then you get onto the next rope kind of series. So during that time, you know, we might even regroup as a team, just check in with everyone. Someone pulls out. Some food, chairs around, and then we and then we go again. Um, and same with the swimming in those lakes. Like I, okay. I think the longest swim in those lakes was it wouldn't have been any more than ten minutes before you got out and had to walk again and then yeah. swim again. So they made it think, seem like it was just like this nonstop swimming, but I guess there was some trekking in between the lakes, so that makes yeah, a lot more yeah, sense. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't wasn't like that at okay. all. Okay. Um, so, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so you just find the time. You just you know we just got it. You just but you just get good, I think, and knowing, man, I need to be eating. And and, and I yeah. guess I'll, I'll just get – so one, when we make up those 12-hour food packs, probably what's um, quite sort of significant is, is that we basically budget for having one thing to eat per hour during the whole race. So in a 12-hour food pack, we basically – when we put those things together, you need to be putting – each person will be putting 12 items into that 12-hour bag. And mm-hmm. every third item, so every three hours is what we consider to be something quite substantial. Mm-hmm. And then there's two snacks and then something quite substantial. So every three hours, someone should, you know, really, you should be eating something, you know, more than a gel or more than kind of a little bar or something. So, yeah. So usually in the, when you're racing, we're usually all quite mindful about kind of where we're at on, on that kind of cycle. And, okay. and at some point, you know, you kind of know, you go, oh, I, need, I really need to be eating something quite significant in the next kind of hour or so, you know, like I'm due for a sort of a one of my three hourly kind of meals, so to speak. Sure. And you're buying food on top of this, like locally, if the opportunity arises, but you don't necessarily count on that. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. So we're completely okay. self-sufficient. And then if we see food, we'll nearly always buy it and eat it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and that kind of brings me, I was going to mention this later, you could challenge, but I think now's a better time. Um, I think it was the off the off school, uh, there was some off school course podcast here on, and I, this is the only time I'd heard this story. And I was literally on a long run yesterday and I listened to it and I was laughing so hard listening to you talk about at the end of um, of Eco Challenge, like before your whole outrigger canoe fell apart, that you guys were like, oh yes, yeah, so we have three to four hours left of like really hard work before we basically win this race. We have we're like far ahead. We got some time to spare. We're gonna stop at this island, and a wedding happened to be going on. And you guys, you and I guess you were looking for food to buy, but you just basically like hit the buffet right away. <laughs> like, can you yeah, tell yeah. me? story again because i found that hysterical and amazing and i was like how is that not on camera that would have been amazing to see on the documentary but no yeah, they didn't show that. there was no camera with us um ah that's why yeah so what happened was um so that was yeah that's right so on the last night we had this outrigger paddle out it was about 50 i think it may have been 50 kilometers 
island hopping out to the finish line. And and by this stage, we we got on the water. Uh, I mean, I'm, <laughs> for those who don't know, haven't seen the show, I'm probably giving stuff away, but I guess yeah, we have already. But, but yeah. Um, yeah, we got on the water with a pretty comfortable lead. Like we, we, we you know, we are like, oh, we – because we're a strong paddling team, so I was like, well, we, we're pretty sorted now. Like this, you know, we can pretty much just enjoy this stage and kind of just do what, you know, we'll, we'll pretty much win this race. Um, but we got hit by a really quite a nasty storm, just kind of came out of nowhere um, that night. And we'd had quite an epic experience for a couple of hours. It had been kind of out there on the on the sort of frontier of what you can sort of go through in an adventure race. Like it was a really kind of um, kind of period of extreme <laughs> couple of hours and we emerged from that and and then it, we came we sort of emerged and it was another it was a beautiful kind of clear starry night the sea was still quite rough but um it was a clear night and uh and then paddling across we're just kind of linking these islands and we were we're probably getting close to halfway through the paddle and and we were actually short on food like we had um sort of miscalculated how much the last two stages were going to how that was going to work um logistically we made a bit of an error so mm-hmm. we were short on food but we weren't worried like we were, we were going to get to the finish no problem but um as we were crossing to this sort of island um that had a resort on it a couple of my teammates one in particular was was sort of like oh i'm pretty i'm sort of starting to feel a bit sleepy um you know, and we had time to burn. Like we had probably five, six, seven-hour lead or something. So I was like, so I sort of suggested, look, why don't we stop at this island? You know, even if it's a ten or twenty-minute stop, um, run into the resort, buy some food, and then um, you know we'll recover that time. Like if we refuel and have a rest, we'll we'll we'll, we'll paddle faster and enjoy the last kind of you know twenty or thirty k to go as a result of that. Everyone was like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, let's like, let's invest some time in sort of to our well-being so so we pulled pulled up on the beach and two of my teammates chris and Stu, decided that they would they would walk up to the resort because we, we had a bag of cash with us and see if mm-hmm. they can buy some food sophie was quite keen just to sleep on the beach so we, it was literally at the resort <laughs> and she kind of got onto one of the deck chairs on the beach is that night amazing and I, i'll just i'll just wait with sophie i'll just kind of sit here by the boat and things but then after a couple of minutes, I was like, oh, I might as well not. I mean, I'm not really achieving anything by sitting here. I wasn't tired, um, sleepy tired. I was steering the boat, so you stay engaged, mentally engaged doing that. I thought I might as well walk up to the buffet, up to the um, restaurant where all these lights are going, you know, where the people are and see what's going on. So I walked <laughs> I walked in, and, and there's clearly a wedding going on. Like, they, they, they had, the wedding had finished. They were having their kind of dinner. Oh, and, the wedding had finished. Wait, yeah, were the, the people wedding- still there, though? Oh yeah, yeah. They were having their kind of like the the dinner, you know, the big meal type thing. Oh, and, so it wasn't. Um, they were what's still that? There. Oh, the wedding, the wedding <laughs> ceremony had finished. Um, okay, got it, got it. But they were so they're having the wedding celebration, you know, and uh, so the bride and groom are sitting there with all the tables set up and all the friends and gathered around and and um, but the buffet was still there, the food buffet. And I, I spotted Chris and Stu kind of over in the corner of the restaurant talking to the staff you know obviously negotiating can we buy some food or you know how's this going to work and and we're all standing there in our paddling gear eh? like we literally just came straight well we were still racing and uh, we've got our race bibs on this is what six days this is six days into your thing like you guys haven't showered or anything right like you're just disgusting (laughs) (laughs) pretty wet oh man um but we definitely look pretty rough and then i kind of figured well 
I must just start eating. I mean, um, you know, adventure racing is pretty feral, and uh, you know, a lot of modern, modern, well, normal rules don't apply to adventure races. And I figured the worst thing they can do is stop is tell me to stop. So I just started. I just basically just stood at the buffet and just started eating. I was just picking up food and eating it. And uh, you know, there was there was well, it was a, you can imagine what buffets like. And then I sort of worked my way down to the dessert end of the buffet and started eating cakes and creams and. And I actually ate as much as I kind of could, really, within within sort of you know five minutes of just standing there grazing. And no one stopped you. No one stopped me. No, no. Did you get a plate, yeah. or were you like literally just like grabbing no, things I'm and putting them out? I, I was helping myself. Yeah, I was going to kind of eat as much as I can until they kind of kicked me out. <laughs> That's and, then I, and then I thought, oh, I better grab some stuff for Sophie. So then I grabbed a couple of handfuls of food and started walking back to where Sophie was. And then about ten minutes later, Chris and Stu turned up. And um, they'd brought some food and drinks and they had coffees and some cans of Coke and some big, big, big containers full of curry and rice and things. So the four of us sat on the beach and had this big meal, like a, a real big meal. But you had and already then, stuffed yourself and you, did you oh, tell them about that part? That was pretty cool, yeah. <laughs> and then, oh, uh, my goodness. That is so amazing. Paddling. Yeah, that was funny. And then we got paddling again. And then we were like, we were laughing. We we're like, man, this is great. You know, we're all awake. We've all had good food. Let's just smash this out and win this race and be done with it. And then you're and both then, apart. And then, <laughs> yeah. Then, oh. then the adventure began. Oh, my God. You must have been so pissed. I've heard you talk about that. Again, you know, just in prepping for this podcast, I've heard you talk about that whole situation. We won't have you go through that whole story again. And, like, <laughs> people can watch it. But, you know, basically your boat just completely fell apart. and. And, you know, just the whole them not time crediting you and all that. I mean, oh, man, I would be proper pissed about that. But you won anyway. So, hey, that's what matters. Right. But again, I'm just like picturing you guys like in your disgusting, like wet gear, just like crashing a wedding. It was amazing. Yeah, Everything yeah. you can do for food. I love it. Um, all right. So let's keep moving along. Really quick question here um, about, OK, there are sleep requirements. I heard you talk about in these races often i think you said it was 11 hours for eco but um are there any like weigh-ins ever like i know ultra runs often will have weigh-ins and the you know making sure that you're properly hydrating just for like a safety concern like is there anything required in terms of like you must carry this many calories with you or you need to weigh yourself or anything like that when it comes to adventure racing no no no, okay (laughs) it's like you have this gear but do whatever you want for food yeah, yeah. There will um, there is medical, there is medical um staff at the different checkpoints, and they will stop if they have the right to stop athletes if they think what the athlete is doing is kind of dangerous. But that very really happens. It does happen sometimes, but it's very rare. But no, we, it's it's up to us really. Huh. Very interesting. I mean, it's in your best interest, obviously, to bring food and do all that stuff. Logistically, with these 12-hour bags you're talking about, and I guess all your gear, are they just like kind of distributing them amongst the various checkpoints for you? Is that what happens? Pretty much, yep. So um, uh, in an unsupported race where the organization move all our logistics around is as we get a, essentially get a plan and we'll have gearboxes, kind of A, B, C, D, and E, and it'll just, we'll basically just get told at the end of this stage, you'll see box A, at the end of this stage, you'll see box B, et cetera. And then we just need to make sure that the right stuff goes into the right boxes. And it. Um, it is, it is, you definitely don't want to get that wrong. Uh, we have got yeah. it wrong in the past and it's not good. 
Um, so yeah, we spend a lot sure. of time making sure that the, the right stuff has gone into the right box. Yeah. Got it. But, oh, but an eco Let's... challenge, we, we had um, a support person driving around. So we had a, key, a guy from New Zealand, and he was essentially meeting us at the camps. So he, he was resupplying us without what we needed. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, actually, in terms of, um, like, that isn't typical, though, right? That you have someone, like, essentially, like, cooking for you and getting things ready at camp and stuff? No, it used to be. It used to be standard, and then it went away. And um, it's been a long time since we've had a race where we had a support person. Most of the races nice? we do. Sorry? It must have been nice, then, to have someone. Yeah, yeah. Kind of oh, totally. Come back totally to you. It yeah, it is. It yeah. is nice. Yeah. 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 Um, most let's briefly talk Let's briefly talk about the team dynamic. Um, you're actually my first guest that is in a team sport, which is awesome. Um, oh. And I really enjoyed the short film called For the Team. That was all about your victory at Reunion Island, um, that adventure race in 2018. And of course, Sophie would have been there, but I guess she broke her ankle. So you had Fleur on your team instead. And I guess just real fast for my listeners, because we haven't really spoken about who your team is or anything. Um, but uh, the New Zealand team, I mean, it's kind of like this historic, again, like the sport was born in New Zealand and and you guys are known for like really dominating it. But the team as we know it now has been in place since 2014. That's when Stu joined. And then 2011, it was Sophie and Chris and yourself. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's right. Cool. Yes. Yep. So you guys have been together for so long. Um, I imagine you guys just like kind of just know all the ins and outs. Like, you probably don't even need to like talk to each other. You can just like look at each other and kind of know where each other, you know, where, know where everyone's at. But, um, you know, you're working hard for the team and you talk about that in this film. But, you know, when it comes to like fueling and all that stuff, like you're monitoring yourself, but you kind of, especially as captain, have to kind of keep an eye on everyone else. And so does that team dynamic like affect any of your fueling strategies? And, and maybe we've already kind of covered it and that you're preparing all these bags and you guys are sharing some stuff. But are there any other considerations at all um, when it comes to the team? Like, I mean, have you guys ever run out of food and water or have had to ration supplies as a team or anything like that? Yes, we have. Um, we have run out before. Uh, sometimes sometimes the stages can take a lot longer than what the race directors tell us. So, mm -hmm. and, and, and to be fair, those stages, they are generally only guides. So they'll give us the, they'll give us the maps and they'll say, you know, we think a fast time for this is going to be 21 hours. And we go, yeah. right, well, that's us. We'll take 21 hours worth of food. But we get out there and find that it's actually 35 hours for whatever reason. Oh, my we goodness. Are, we, I don't know. We're, yeah, we're, sometimes things just blow out um, for, for lots of different reasons. So we normally take a bit of extra food, but we've definitely run out of food before. And, um, and then we have also, we've also struggled to find uh, water in, in races before as well, thankfully for not, not too long. But most of the time, I think we're pretty good at foreseeing that. Like we, we actually got pretty good now at looking at stages and going, well, I think this is going to take longer or less or longer. So let's sort of adjust accordingly. Um, if in doubt, we'll always carry more. Like we're probably one of the teams that will carry bigger packs um, if mm -hmm. we're unsure about something. And then I think out on course, uh, yeah, well, I think – you know, we all probably chip into the nutrition thing. Like I think we're often reminding each other just to make sure we're eating and drinking. Um, you know, like we'll often say, you know, like there's stuff like, oh, we've only got six hours to go in this stage team, so there's no point in carrying food out. 
Um, and, and so we might, you know, we might just start getting food out and eating it, or we might, if we're going through a village, we might even just give it to people, or, you know, depending on what it is, we might just kind of empty it out for the wildlife to kind of have a taste. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, we, we, we're quite mindful of our nutrition all the time, I think, um, you know, because we obviously don't want to be carrying more food around than we need. Um, yeah. Well, often we'll just try and eat it. Like, we've got too much. We'll go, we might as well just put it in, we might as well eat it then. Um, and then, you know, then, then we kind of know it's going to get be of some use somewhere on the line. But, um, what, yeah, uh, I think, what's, yeah. what's the longest you've gone without food? Oh, uh, I think, to be honest, I don't, I don't sort of remember us ever running out in a race and not having any food at all. What tends to okay. happen is we, we realize that we're getting low and then we'll go on to sort of start rationing it. Okay. And so we'll, so I think in, in the World Champs in Brazil, we ran out of food. Um, there was one stage, I think, took us about three days, and um, which is about twice as long as they expected it to take. So I know, I know for the last day, you know, we were, we, we, it was pretty grim. Like I, I can't even remember to be, to be honest, but you know, I think what we decided that we were in two pack crafts and two boats. There was Sophie and I were in one and Chris and Stuart in the other. So what we decided was is that we'll just kind of each boat just kind of share what food you've got left because it wasn't practical for us to kind of always be together as a four. So, mm-hmm. so and Stu and Chris typically will probably burn, will probably eat more than combined than Sophie and I. And then so I just remember that last day, like Sophie and I looking at our food bag and we had like, you know, a small, a lot, whatever it was, it was like half, like a, half a packet of like dried mango and like two gels and, you know, two nun tablets or something. And that was to last us for 12 hours or something. But oh, we gosh. had but we had plenty of water. We had unlimited fresh drinking water. And and to, yeah. be, to be honest, um, you know, once you get about, after about 50 hours of racing, um, you know, that's the critical time when you see, you seem to be able to make, you definitely don't want to run out of food in that time. It can really knock you around. But in the later stages of the race, I think, especially for me, um, you tend to you tend to, to go without food quite easily if you need to. I think you just start burning kind of your body reserves more. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I, I, I remember thinking at that on that particular time in the Pantanal in Brazil, it would have been nice to have some more food, but it wasn't really an issue. Like as long as we had water to drink and and um, you know, it you could just uh, you know catch a piranha and cook it up for something. <laughs> There was plenty of there was plenty of um, marine life and there was piranhas in there for sure, but um, no, we were we we didn't quite get to that level thankfully. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember I heard you talk about the Patnal race. I've actually traveled there and it's like so gorgeous. But um, yes. I, I heard you talking about it just being like one of the rem- most remote places you've been and and how it would take a while to kind of get help. So f- to run out of food or run low on supplies there is a little concerning to say the least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Which kind of leads me into my next chunk here, um, which is extreme situations. And, you know, there are many when it comes to adventure racing, extreme temperature changes, altitude shifts, minimal sleep, and that all uh, obviously affects your ability to fuel adequately and consistently. So um, I guess my next question on this is extreme sleep deprivation. And again, I know there are some 
you know, minimal requirements for sleep. And one of the things in eco that was very interesting hearing you speak about on another podcast, which they definitely did not show in the show because that would have been, you know, more boring. But you said you got two full nights of sleep, which is like almost unheard of in an adventure race, I think. Um, But how does sleep deprivation typically, like, does it affect your ability to fuel at all or um, you know, struggles with just getting food down and remembering to eat, or you're just so kind of used to all of this, it's not really an issue. I think, I think um, it's probably more, it probably more affects the less experienced teams. Like we've sort of learned now uh, the effects of sleep deprivation on, on all aspects of kind of racing. So we actually work pretty hard to avoid um, getting into what we consider to be a really sleep deprived state so we even if there's not even if there's not mandatory sleep our team is pretty disciplined to actually just stop and take some sleep ourselves um just because we know that we're not moving efficiently we're not looking after ourselves properly we, we, we're prone to making mistakes navigational mistakes if we if we try and push on so so i guess for us it's a lot more about preventative stuff than um than sort of having to manage manage things got it uh, We've also learned that um, you know that 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 good nutrition and plenty of fuel on board will actually counter um, sleep deprivation as well. So by making sure mm. your body's plenty of plenty of fuel. So often, often if someone's getting sleepy now, like we'll often um, you know the first thing they do is actually get a decent amount of food in. It's like well, actually, what what, what and, and sometimes it can be that. The food that you're carrying is stuff that doesn't excite you. So you might, you might, you might. Generally, you know what's in your pack, and you're going, "Well, mm-hmm. I should be eating something." But right now, there's nothing in my pack that that I actually want. And then, so then, then it's just a matter of asking your teammates. It's like, "Hey, who's got? You know, if there's something you specifically want, uh, you know, you just ask. We just ask the teammates, and if they've got it, they'll give it to you. You know, they're like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. sweet, here's this, here's this food. If this is." If this is the only thing you eat right now, then then um and then enjoy it, you know. And and often yeah. we'll trade. Often you kind of trade. It may not be like at the time, but you kind of know that if you've given one of your teammates a significant amount of your food, you can't, you can't expect <laughs> you can't expect at some stage in the race they'll give that back. Yeah, so, uh, doesn't always happen, but that's all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've de- you've really demonstrated an ability to remain calm and composed under you know, so many different types of situations, extreme situations included where, you know, many people would have been completely freaking out. So I know for you, like the boat falling apart at the end, like the way they recorded it just made it seem like you guys were about to drown. Like literally, I remember finishing, like my husband and I definitely binged that whole (laughs) whole series. And I remember getting to that point where like, oh my God, we have to stay up later and figure out what happened. Um, But of course, again, in reality, like, you had mentioned, oh, it was just more of a nuisance, not a big deal. But um, but any tips on how you remain calm under pressure? Like, do you practice certain techniques? Again, is it just down to experience? Um, yeah, anything you can share there? I think it's. I think a lot of it is probably more. To me, it's probably more sort of philosophical. Um, I mean, I think. I, I think as a generalizer, you know, as a, I guess as a theme or a philosophy that. You know, one thing that I've always sort of, well, have learned to believe, and, and, and this is, I think my teammates are sort of on the same page, um, is, is that, is about what sort of behavior is helpful in any situation. And, 
and, and I guess, you know, we've learned event tracing and most things I think in life is, is that, um, you know, when you're faced with a challenge or a problem or an obstacle of some sort or something's not going to plan, then kind of freaking out and panicking and, you know, making irrational decisions or generally would sort of classify that as unhelpful behaviour. So mm-hmm. we are, the question we often ask ourselves is, you know, the, I guess is within our team, you know, we, we've, we've sort of had many discussions about, about how we, how you know how we continue to be a high-performing team. You know what are the tools and what are the mechanics of that and what does it look like? And one of the things, one of the questions, you know, that we 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 I think we're all very good at asking ourselves in those times of challenge and controversy when you know exactly what happened the eco challenge is before you say anything or do something is asking the question: Well, how is this actually helpful? How is this helpful to the situation? And I think if you sort of live by that philosophy. Um, you know, the most helpful thing you can probably do at that point is actually is is actually to be quite calm, and to just take some time to figure out really what the situation is, and what is the best way to fix that. You're ultimately trying to find the best solution in the shortest time possible, and so you don't want to waste energy on stuff that's not going to be helpful. You know, there's no point in blaming the organisers for, for faulty equipment or blaming someone for not doing this or doing that or questioning why has this happened or how did this happen. You know, we're, we're very good at going, well, what, what's helpful right now is figuring out how we're going to fix this. We actually need to get to the finish line somehow as quick as we can. Right now we're all floating around in the ocean with a broken boat. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and when I you think, can't fix it, like – I mean, maybe not in this circumstance, but I'm sure there have been moments in your very long history of venture racing where you've totally lost it, or maybe not totally, but partially, you know, because sometimes we need to just like release, right? I mean, I imagine yeah. like you feel these emotions and you know, you're exhausted, you're, you know, you're tired, you're fatigued, maybe at the end of the race, like yeah. ha- what, has there been a moment where you were not so calm if you want to share it? Yeah, it has been, I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't say I've just sort of fully lost it. Um, I have done that a few times in my life, more when I've been an outdoor educator <laughs> with my students. I don't think I've ever lost it with my teammates like that. I may have thought that. I may have thought that in my mind, but I've gone, well, that's just not going to be helpful right now to kind of do that. Um, there's, it's more that you sort of – I think for me there's been a few occasions where I've said something quite calmly, but it, it, it was a dig. It wasn't helpful. It wasn't intended to be – it wasn't yeah. – you know, it was kind of like, and, and you just regret that. Like, I've just regretted it. And then I end up feeling bad. And, and then obviously, I want to fix things. And then you're wasting energy on sort of apologizing and your teammates are upset. And, you know, there's, there's been a couple of occasions like that. And I think the last one of those was, was I think, in 2015. You know, I said something that I regretted. And it was, I was calm, but it was just an unhelpful thing to say. And it was, it was, it was just frustration and kind of, you know, I didn't think the team were, were, were racing sensibly and they weren't listening to kind of, you know, what I was – because I, I guess to be fair to me, in my defence, is, is that often before the, yeah, before the race, we, we, we as a team, we'll come up with a – we essentially will agree on a race strategy. And then, and then I see my role, one of my roles as team captain, is actually to, to play that race strategy out. So before the race, the whole team will buy into the strategy. How are we going to race this race? And we will all agree on that. 
then we get out there and then the team can start to be different to what the strategy is. And then so I'm often the one saying, hey, guys, this is not what we talked about at the start. And then, and that's what happened in that race. And then that, I, I think two or three things happened where I was basically trying to get the team to go, this is not what we agreed on. This is, mm. you know, and then, and then, and then, and then I actually did. I snapped. I reached a breaking point. I was, just, and then I sort of said a few things I, I regret, regretted saying, but it was probably quite mm. effective. But, um, yeah. But yeah, there's a few things like that. So I guess over the time, you just learn better strategies on how to deal with those things. Well, that's a pretty good track record. Last time that happened was 2015. I think I can I can't even count on two hands the number of times I've lost it in the last month. <laughs> so, <laughs> granted, I have two well, little kids. My, and COVID and everything. My, my teammates might might have a different answer to that question. Oh yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that, is, that is very true. Um, but I mean, there's so many dimensions, so many like different things going on in the sport. Again, I find it fascinating. Um, not even just from a nutrition standpoint, but um, it's very interesting. So I know we're, we've already at an hour and a half. So if you have time, yeah. um, I press on with, with some more questions. Sure, Let's sure, move yeah. into your challenge specifically. You've already answered tons of my questions that also relate, but. Um, for anyone who hasn't watched it, like I, I will warn you in the beginning, spoiler alert, but <laughs> we were a little too late for that. But yeah. um, the race was 671 kilometers. The last time an eco challenge happened was also in Fiji, but it was in 2002. And that was an event you also won. So how did the 2002 event compare to this one, aside from the fact that you are, of course, now much older and you were racing on a different team? Uh, I, I guess it was quite similar. Um, the course was course. similar. Yeah, okay. so I, I think um, they they generally kind of reused the course from last time, but I actually didn't remember a lot of the course, and it wasn't usually until after I'd completed a stage, and then one of the staff would sort of say to me, this happened a number of times, my teammates were kind of making a joke about it, uh, where the, you know, one of the race one of the race staff would sort of say to me, oh, you know, do you remember that from last time? And I'm like, no, no, I didn't. <laughs> so it might as well have been a new country, I mean, a new race, but I guess I've spent um, so much time in the Pacific Islands that that environment is pretty familiar, you know, for me. New Zealand and the Pacific Islands are, are kind of my, you know, that's my heritage, they're my home. My home. So, so racing in Fiji was very easy. I think, um, you know, for me, it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a really unknown kind of uh, sort of quantity. But, but the courses were very similar. I think the distance was about the same. Um, you know the racing was was very similar, and the finish time was almost identical, like our time on course. Yeah, is there a difference between Eco Challenge events and other adventure races, like you know the World Championships, or is it simply like a branding thing and it being televised and cameras with you and stuff? Yeah, that's right. It's mainly that's mainly the difference. Yeah, okay. like so, so. So on course, no World Champs or other big races. There's a big race in New Zealand called God's Own. Mm, that's coming up for you right yeah that's in march it was supposed to be nice. this month but because of covid uh, it was yeah but um no the the on oh, course the, the mechanics and the challenges and the way things work are pretty much the same i mean eco is a real fun event to be part of because because of the height you know there's camera sure. crews around there's helicopters buzzing you know beer grills is sort of backflipping out of helicopters and having a chat to you and <laughs> Um, you know, there's, yeah. that, there's that kind of circus kind of around it, which is which is quite fun. But um, yeah, like I, I, yeah, the other races are yeah. without are pretty much the same without the without the TV production happening alongside. 
I have two questions specific to Eco Challenge. Um, number one is about the film crew. I was so curious about how that worked with the film crew following you guys all around because, I mean, I know they weren't with you the entire time. And I read an article in the LA Times about just like applying for that job. Obviously, you have to be pretty uh, athletic. To, that's a very big understatement. But I mean, you have to be very fit to be a camera crew following these teams around. Um, but they were with you huge chunks of the time. And and you guys are also going at a good clip. You know, you're not just moseying around. So um, so I was very interested in that aspect. And I kept like asking my husband, he's like, oh, just shut up already. Watch the show. I was like, but how did you do this? How are they? I don't understand. Because like there's this whole other person. Um, you know, how are they getting these shots? But I imagine it was distracting. Like, I mean, first of all, I mean, just the aspect of constantly being interviewed and all aspects of this like week-long thing you're trying to just focus on all this stuff you're tired whatever but um but also the fact that like you have this almost like fifth team member with you in a way who's kind of like there was like one I don't know if you remember this part of the series where like some team was like stuck in the canyon and the water went up yeah Yeah, like the film crew the guy was like right there with them like trapped in there like did it stress you out, like having essentially almost like this additional team member that you had to worry about, or were you distracted by having this person? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I mean, I guess our team and, and a number of the other top teams, the difference there is probably not as not as much um, for us because often even at World Champs, like they'll often tag a cameraman with us for a stage oh, okay. or. Um, I mean, they're not doing productions to the same capacity, obviously, but um, they will still send people into the field. And it may just be a stills photographer or it might just be for just a live update. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess having someone tagged a lot, tagging along with us is not that unusual um, on the grand scheme of things. And okay. um, and, I, and I think... Yeah, this just, this just comes with experience as well. So. Chris and Stu are our navigators. Chris is our main navigator, and Stu's kind of backing him up. So I'll, I'll generally, and you may have, may have noticed, but I kind of tend to be the one speaking for the team, and yep. <laughs> uh, and that's largely deliberate. Like I will often protect those guys from the media to allow them to that's kind of not be distracted and to do their job. So, so often. Um, and, and I, out of all the teammates, I'm the one who's actually had some media training. So I kind of know, I kind of learned what the cameramen are after, you know, what the sound mm-hmm. bite they'll potentially want. And I'll generally try sure. and give them some stuff. And then they will actually leave us alone um, a lot of the time. Like if you actually give them what they want, um, <laughs> they, they go, well, I've got the shot. I've got the sound bite. I don't really need need any more. I'll um I'll yeah. get a helicopter pick up and I'll leave you guys alone. And so so we actually didn't have team the cameraman with us that all that much because often often they would just kind of pick up something, get the shot they wanted, get the sound bite and be gone. What we did find quite intrusive. What we did find quite intrusive is is that for the first time ever they actually mic'd us up. So Sophie and I mainly were wearing um mics and they were recording 24 7 uh what really yeah, what we were saying wow. and there was a little bit of muck around with that like we had to kind of every time we came into a camp we need to go and get our batteries changed and they would mic us up again different things and wow. towards the end of the race i actually i actually said to them no we're not we're not going to wear these mics anymore 
because we actually did find that they became a bit intrusive and that you know it was it was censoring what we wanted to talk about um when we were out yeah. there in the field just the four just the four of us you know and, and it's not like we were talking about anything you know it wasn't like we were talking about sort of super super secretive stuff or anything but it just felt that you know when you're out there on those big long treks and stuff you just want to talk to your teammates about and you might want to just talk yeah. about stuff that's happening in your personal lives and you know how's you know you might ask one of your teammates you know just how's your relationship going or how's your marriage or how are your kids or something and we just didn't want that stuff being recorded so we found that yeah. we would want to talk with our teammates about something meaningful but we couldn't you know you start talking and then someone start pointing at their mic going no 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 don't don't you know so oh, towards wow. the end of the race, so towards the end of the race i sort of said to them look no we're not going to wear these mics anymore sorry we're not we're not we're not and they were really respectful they were like fine fine i understand that's fine and, and i don't think yeah. i think they had any of that stuff anyway so I don't know if they'd ever do that again if they if they did that. That seems yeah, that seems really unnecessary because like I mean, there's stuff of course if you're talking like strategy type stuff or whatever. But yeah, just in the terms of like the personal nature of things, or even just like you wanted to go to the bathroom or like anything yeah, personal yeah. at all. I don't like, think it's all recorded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. That's crazy. It just seems very Big Brother esque and very unnecessarily yeah. intrusive. Wow, that's that's very interesting. Um, yeah. so another point on filming um you know what we see on film or on this you know what was actually you know captured in these in the series versus reality and i think this is a really big one especially when it comes to sleep and nutrition and i want to explore that a little bit more we've already explored it somewhat like obviously we didn't see you crashing the wedding getting all that nutrition but you know obviously they're dramatizing part of this to be like oh you know they're barely eating and they're barely sleeping and they're completely like you know they're they're making it out to be this whole thing which i understand um but there were sleep requirements they don't talk about that and obviously i know you guys were eating and as you mentioned again you slept these two nights and you felt great um you're like oh it's like a holiday in fiji so it's just kind of funny but um I went back and and rewatched just just clips of your team to just to see if I could like like what I could see for the eating and drinking because you know when I was watching I wasn't like I mean I was paying attention just as a dietitian I was curious but I wasn't catching everything so I couldn't you know I wasn't seeing a ton but I would always see your camelbacks you know I would see I saw you guys coming into a village eating what looked like real food out of like to-go containers so clearly you got that from somewhere I saw Sophie with her water bottle all the time or eating a bar and camp four, you guys were like all eating what looked like a platter of fruit. And I couldn't even tell what else. But, you know, you were always like in the transitions. If you weren't like even while you're being interviewed, if you weren't prepping your gear, you were munching on something. So, you know, it's very interesting, like just all of that stuff that wasn't quite captured. And again, that's not what people want to hear about when, you know, the world's toughest race. But just mm. kind of a note to my listeners that like you guys, I mean, yes, you guys are superhuman in a way, but truly you are only human <laughs> so you are yeah. doing these things you know like i imagine like all the like not very pretty details of things like if you're in a kayak for four hours six hours like at some point you have to go to the bathroom like you know on an iron you're like peeing on your bike or doing whatever you're doing like you're just mm. human beings so i thought that was interesting but is there anything that i haven't mentioned or we haven't talked about that we didn't see on camera especially when it comes to food or any other kind of fun tidbits that you want to share and it's okay if not if we've covered it all but just kind of curious yeah no I don't think so but I, I guess what I'd say is that um look I think I think they eco world's toughest race I do think they did a really good job of telling the adventure racing story 
And I think it was a wise move of them not to try and explain to people the mandatory sleep thing. Like, I reckon that would have been just added a whole lot of confusion um, mm-hmm. to people. You know, you start with dark zones and then these teams, they have to sleep certain times and everything. And then I think it would have been probably a little bit more complicated than necessary. And and while that race, you know, had some sort of little unique things, I think as a, if you start to throw a blanket across the whole sport, in most of the races we do, there isn't actually mandatory sleep and you just sleep when you feel like you need to. And that means mm-hmm. that if you want to be competitive, you might actually be racing, you know, 24 hours out of a 24-hour day. Um, you're on the go the whole time. So so I think it's tell- I think in terms of telling an event racing story, I think they did a really good job in that sense. But but you're right, you know, like we did because they shut the course because of flooding on the second night, we got a full night's sleep and then we met then we hit the because of because of that, we then hit the dark zone. We weren't allowed to go white with a rafting until the following day. So we had another almost full night's sleep. And then um when we come into the camps, yeah, Mark, our support person, you know, he would have meals prepped for us. Um, you know, he was making us fresh coffee. Uh, he'd have heaps of fruit. Um, we'd pass through villages. Some of the villages, there were stores. You know, we could actually go and buy mm-hmm. stuff from the village store. I think we only actually did that once, or twice, I think, in the whole race, though. Um, mm-hmm. Because most, most of the time, we actually had enough food on board, and we just didn't want the delay of sure. kind of mucking around, getting money out and, and um, buying food. Because we didn't need it. You know, we didn't need it at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, so I think it was. I think it was pretty. Um, yeah. No, it was. I think overall it was. It was. You know, there wasn't. Yeah. It was. It, it, it was definitely just a normal race for us in most respects. You know, it just happened yeah. to be we were filming it at the same time. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's shift gears away from Eco Challenge. Now, you developed a heart condition as an adult and had three corrective surgeries. When did these happen? And has this affected your athletic career at all or is it something you take into consideration these days at all oh yeah i do i do take it into consideration um i first noticed the heart condition in the late 90s i think i actually had it through my mountain biking career but it was so sporadic um i didn't really know what it was i thought it was just just overtraining or something weird it uh, it would just kind of pop up every now and again but in 19 um, pretty much around 2000, I got it diagnosed, and that's when I had my first um, corrective surgery, I think, for memory. So, yeah, I've, mm-hmm. I guess I've had it now for, yeah, 20 years or something now, and um, I am mindful of it. I think almost on a daily basis, I'm I'm grateful when, when my heart is normal, and I can go and train and do the things I want to do, and, and it, you know, without kind of willing... <laughs> The condition to kind of come back i'm also aware that you know i've been told by the surgeons who i kind of know quite well now so i've had three three surgeries mm-hmm. in that time is is that is is that the it probably will return one day so i, I guess every day that it hasn't returned i sort of almost you know there's, i almost acknowledge that on a daily basis that um that i can sort of live another normal day before before this thing may come back again and um mm. yeah i'm not concerned about it in terms of life threatening sort of stuff but it is definitely annoying and it is quite limiting limiting what i can do um you know yeah. if, if the condition comes back so um and yeah. the worst you know it would be the worst scenario for me would be for it to come back you know right at, during a race or right before a big race or something so it is it is something that's on, it is sort of you know reasonably on my mind a lot of the time and uh, it's mm-hmm. a good it is a good it's a good reason, though, to stay fit and healthy as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, during your recent career as well, and I guess sometime not that long after that, since you have three teenage kids, you did become a dad. You have three kids. And I'm curious to hear if this also affected your training and racing at all, um, especially when they were quite young. This is the kids? The mean? kids, yeah. Yeah, becoming uh, a dad, yeah. No, no, I don't think they, no, I don't think they changed training and racing too much. Um, in fact, you know, I think, I think Ben, I've been sort of, in a, you know, I was a professional event racer when they were real young. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I actually think that was, a, that was, that I was very fortunate because, um, you know, it actually gave me, a, and I still have quite a lot of flexibility, but during that time, it gave me plenty of flexibility to, to kind of be quite present with them. So, and and be around so even now like even even today for example like i can plan my day around being around when my kids finish school so you know like i thought you know my son and i are going to hook up and do something you know once he finishes school today so you know i i guess having that flexibility means i can sort of um actually pick and choose kind of what i do and when i do it and and, and be around for them so i think it's been good i I think probably what it has changed is more what I do recreationally. Like I used to do a lot of uh, quite challenging whitewater kayaking, which is a reasonably dangerous sport. It feels dangerous to me anyway. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of backed off on that some years ago. I remember paddling a very, very challenging whitewater river on the West Coast. We flew flew into the mountains by helicopter and paddling out. And I remember just paddling this whitewater going, man, there's no room for error here. Like if you make a mistake, and this level of whitewater, you know, the consequences are pretty serious. I mean, you'll get seriously hurt or, you know, the worst case scenario, you'd drown. And I just remember thinking that day that I, you know, it's probably not the best thing to be doing with a young family. And I haven't mm. really done kind of I haven't really done that sort of stuff since really. I kinda I still love going kayaking, but I just do stuff that's that's a lot safer and, and less challenging. I feel like if you think it's dangerous, it must be extremely dangerous. <laughs> You have like a whole different risk tolerance than some of us. Yeah, but uh, yeah, unless unless you're doing that stuff all the time. Like I got mates sure. that, that that's what I do all the time, and I don't think it's that dangerous for them. It was just a bit more dangerous for me because I wasn't doing that all that regularly. So they would often joke, you know, like I'm pretty much just sort of getting off the couch and into the helicopter, and then the next mm. thing you know, you're kind of you know you're paddling a sort of grade five kind of technical river. <laughs> So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and speaking of kids, I mean, you're so active with your kids and I, I follow you on Instagram and see all the ventures you go on with your son and oh, cool. your daughter. Yeah. You, have, you have two daughters and one son, right? Is that That's right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's just so awesome. And, you know, I have a one and a three-year-old and I just cannot wait until they're old enough that I can do adventures with them. But yeah, what tips do you have on kind of getting kids involved in the outdoors or anything you want to speak to on this topic? I think my advice to people is to start is just to start them young. Like kids are so malleable and adaptable and adjustable that whatever you do with them is normal for them. And the and I think a lot of I've had quite a few parents talk to me in more recent years and kind of say they wish their kids were sort of more like mine. And and I think really what they're meaning by that is is that they don't have that much control over their kids anymore because they're teenagers and they're obviously into, you know, they've sort of been trapped by kind of social media and 
you know, gaming and apps and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the parents would rather their kids got outside and was active in the outdoors. But it's kind of too late. Like they've sort of, and, and I never really say that to people, but that's really what I'm thinking is I've actually left it too late. Whereas, you know, for my kids, like, like being active in the outdoors daily is a normal part of life. So they don't really know um, any different because that's what that's what they grew up with. So, so it's not that unusual to go and, you know, like a, it's almost on. A, I mean, I've got like, as you know now, I've got three teenagers, so they are all nearly all three of them now are independently taking ownership of being active in the outdoors on a daily basis on some sort. So they'll just come home and go well. I need to go for a run or a bike ride or, you know, I might That's go for awesome. a camp. We live at a beach or something or they've got events they're training for, whether it be event racing or soccer or orienteering or whatever it is, they've got an event coming up. And, and you know, we do a lot of seasonal stuff, so they look forward to going skiing. You know, ski season comes along, so they know, you know, it'll be great to get into the mountains, do some skiing. And, you know, summer's coming around, so it'll be fun to do some river trips and things. So they're just growing up with that. And I just think that, you know, adventure is is – is accessible to everyone at different ages. So we, our kids have been involved in adventure their whole lives. But I mean, the first adventures when they were kids your age, that was just being outside and you know playing playing in the forest and you know just throwing stones into a creek or you know walking down the beach and picking up rocks. You know that 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 that's adventure as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be sort of skydiving and. Bungee <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. Uh, yeah, totally, totally goals for what I have. I envision my kids and you know, even just like, you know, my husband, we, we, you know, we all went as a family to do this 50 miler um, in New York, at, like in upstate New York. And, you know, and he finishes 50 miler and my three year old, I was pregnant with my second at the time. And you know, and he picked her up and carried the finish line and she's just like so excited, but it's like just another race. And she's like cheering on all the runners as she does at all the races. And, you know, it's like no big deal. Oh yeah. Mommy and daddy are going, are running long this weekend. <laughs> you okay. know, so it's, and it's like, I can't wait to kind of get her involved in that beyond just being in the stroller or whatever. And she's already done like some short hikes and that kind of stuff, but yeah, it's, it's super exciting stuff. We, you know, we yeah. live in New York city, not the same as living in New Zealand. <laughs> in nature but uh you know we do it again um your everyday diet now would you say it's kind of you would describe it in a similar fashion to the one you grew up with i think so yeah i think i think um you know we we're pretty lucky where we live regionally in new zealand we there's a lot of produce grown here we have a lot of fruit and a lot of seasonal fruit um so we can buy and we often a lot of that stuff we can just buy from the roadside and so, yeah, I think I think for us, I mean, we would, you know, my age group in New Zealand, you know, the generation, my generation and probably the older people, I think it's still very ingrained in us that meat is a very important part of your diet. Like we grew up um, with that. So we eat a lot less meat now as a family. And, yeah. you know, yeah. we, we probably eat three meat meals a week or something. And, and largely that's because we enjoy it. But I think we do have, I'd like to believe we've got pretty qual- good quality meat here in New Zealand. Like it's, you know, we, we see often where <laughs> where the animals are being farmed, and they, you know, mm. they they're in pretty amazing conditions. You know, um, you know that where the New Zealand farming is 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 quite traditional. Yeah. Um. So I think we've got access to pretty good meat, and um, 
and so we 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 do enjoy some of that. And then same with you know we have good fruit, vegetables, and lots of seasonal fruit here where I live. And yeah, we I think we just eat fairly what I consider to be just a fairly natural natural food diet. Um, yeah, you know we limit we we limit processed food like we hardly ever buy frozen pre-prepared stuff hardly ever mm-hmm. and um, yeah we just cook cook pretty basic meals from basic ingredients um mm-hmm. do you cook or your wife cooks or both um we both cook i probably i probably will cook more so when i'm home I, i'm typically the one who travels more um i do enjoy cooking and i don't think my wife would be upset if i said that the family enjoy it more if i cook Mm-hmm. So, so generally when I'm home, I'll I'll sort of cook the main meals, um, yeah, as a as a general rule, and then yeah, uh, yeah. So I guess you know for bre- breakfast at this time of year for us is is often just you know some good quality cereal. Um, we don't drink a lot of milk in our house. We, my wife and I actually uh, after growing up, we actually didn't like dairy milk, so we generally drink mm-hmm. almond milk or rice milk purely by mm-hmm. just preference. So our kids have got kind of used to that as well. And then we'll just have a lot of fruit, a lot of, um, you know, this time of year there's lots of strawberries around, so we're eating a lot of strawberries, for cereal, you know, with our breakfast. And then, yeah, lunch is just often just some, you know, we're quite good quality breads. I quite like the kind of the German style sort of rye mm-hmm. breads and things. And, yeah, it's just bread and avocado. And we've got a good local peanut butter company here that makes <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, we eat a lot of that. And, I don't know, just kind of, you know, salads and things. And then, yeah, dinners is just, Lots of veggie-based meals with sometimes you know a bit of rice and sometimes pasta and yeah, meat awesome. and fish and things. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Now you know you're 48 years old and still totally crushing it. Even though you're quick to say that your team would be much faster without you, um, <laughs> I know that longevity in the sport or just in you know just sporting life generally is a really high priority goal for you. Uh, how do you help kind of prevent injury and keep your body as strong? as it is, you know, as you get older? I think, I think, um, I think I am sort of a little bit blessed. Like I, I, um, just with my genes that my family have passed on to me, I, I seem to be, uh, have had a pretty amazing career that's been largely injury free. Um, and I've had a few injuries, but they're usually a direct result of like a high speed crash on my mountain bike or, or doing something like that. Um, <laughs> I I think diet our diet is definitely contributes towards that. Um, there is a guy in Nelson, a nutritionist that I go and see from time to time, just if I'm feeling like I need some advice on something, and he'll often prescribe um, some supplements, but they're only sort of based on kind of what he thinks might be helpful at that time. There's nothing. There's nothing ever um, just maintenance, like just take this and just keep taking it. It's like take this for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks and then stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll often try and find nutrition, just normal food ways of kind of reaching the same yeah. goal. Well, so I think I think the help that he's given me over the years has is, is definitely done that. And, and then the other thing I reckon that's definitely helped is training multiple disciplines. Like because I essentially share my training between running, biking and kayaking, yeah, it's lower uh, impact, I guess. Yeah, and you can pick and choose things. So, like, if, if I go for a really hard run one day and the next day my legs or the next few days my legs haven't recovered, I'll, I can just either do some recovery bike riding or I can just go paddling for a few days. 
and just mm. lean to my, my paddling. And then if I, for some reason, if my upper body's feeling a bit, it's not recovering quite right, then I'll, I can just take a few days out of paddling and focus on and just do more running. So having the different sports to train for, I think, is really good because it just you can listen to your body and and still go out and train, but just go and do different things. That um, yeah, and I, I think that I think that's really good for um, for just balance. And then and then obviously we do a lot of other. I do a lot of cross training. So you know, in the winter I do a lot of skiing and ski touring and. You know, just doing stuff with the family, hiking trips, and whatever it is you do. Like, do, my son and I do quite a lot of kiteboarding. I'm just teaching my youngest daughter that as well at the moment. So, mm-hmm. I think just having a good cross section of things, just just working on that agility and through different activity. Um, you know, just I think all that actually helps just avoid injury because you're never actually doing the same thing for that long. Yeah, and I think just also mentally, the fact that because like obviously burnout is a is a real thing, both physically and mentally, but the fact that so much of the quote unquote training you do is not even like, act- I mean, it's training, but it's not really training. It's, as you say, recreational, it's fun. It's just part of your life. You know, it's part of mm. being with your kids, bonding with your kids. It's just part of your day. And, and it, but it is contributing towards your fitness. And, you know, you said before, like there's, there's kind of like your everyday maintenance, like this is just my life kind of training and it's super fun. Mm. And then there's the super kind of focused training leading up to an event. and. I imagine that also really contributes to the fact that you are 48 and still going strong. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. 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 Um, so you have Godzone coming up in March, which hopefully will happen. Um, and Eco Challenge Patagonia is at this point in time, I mean, I've heard you talk kind of not really being sure, but I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's happening or when next year, but is that something that's a possibility for you or are you kind of done with that? No, it's a definitely a possibility. Um, it'll depend a bit on on timing, when it is, and um, and also uh, probably depend a bit on New Zealand kind of restrictions. At the moment, mm-hmm. if we leave New Zealand, which is not easy to do, coming back is even harder. And Interesting. We would need to um, quarantine for two weeks uh, coming back into New Zealand which we'd have mm-hmm. to pay for ourselves. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so there's lots of reasons not to travel. <laughs> and whether mm. that's next year, um, well, I don't know. So, yeah, so they, don't, they don't know if it's happening yet? They still don't know? No, no. They, 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 they seem to be in a bit of a holding pattern. Um, okay. Yeah, so it's very, very, all very unknown at this stage what, what next year will bring. Because I think yeah. I saw like one of the potential dates was like February or something, and maybe there's another one that was a little bit later. But I mean, that's kind of soon. It's <laughs> not that far off. No, they, a lot yeah, of planning. No, I, don't know. I don't. It's hard to imagine they were ever serious about that date. I I sort of wonder if they were just sort of creating, you know, just kind of just using yeah. that to create a bit of hype. But um, no, they definitely came back and said if it happens in Patagonia, it'll be November next year. Okay, got it. Okay, so there's a yeah. little more time now. And Patagonia, because yeah. um, you've spoken before about not, because of your heart, not being able to, to compete or train at altitude, is Patagonia doable for you from that respect? It should be, yeah. I don't I don't know for sure. I would have some concerns, but I wouldn't be too worried at Patagonia because the, just because it's so extreme down there, like I don't imagine yep. they would, if they went high, they wouldn't go for long because, yeah, um, yeah you would just, you would, you'd, well. 
you wouldn't risk it as a course designer. You wouldn't risk sending people high in those mountains for long. Um, sure. Because the chance chances are, um, yeah, it wouldn't work. Yeah. Have so you raced just, down there before? I I've raced in the northern part of Patagonia before. Yeah, not in the okay. southern part. I'm not I'm not entirely sure where it'll be. I suspect it'll be in the northern part, but it'd be cool, it. quite nice if it was in the southern part. Oh. It's gorgeous down there. It's it's so mm. epic down there. But yeah, as they say, you can have four seasons in one day, pretty much. So it's very, yeah. it is very unpredictable and very extreme. Um, anyways, we have been talking for two hours. Thank you ah. for being so generous <laughs> with your time. I oh, oh god, you know, I've I've been running along with these interviews lately, so I apologize. But I just you're so fascinating to talk to. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I just have some what I call my quick bites questions, which I ask sure. all my guests, and then I will let you get back to your breakfast. <laughs> Um, yeah. So your favorite meal or snack when in a hurry? Well, I'm I'm one of these people that can eat cereal at any time of the day. So often, oh, um, yeah, if I'm rushing out the door, uh, you know, quick, quick, tip some cereal into a bowl, put some almond milk on it, and quickly slice up a slice up a banana on it, and um, I can, yeah, that I nearly get sick of sick of that, and that's a good sort of pre or post training um meal for me it seems to uh yeah always always be be um easy to easy to get eat uh, eat get down mm-hmm. what about fav- your favorite meal or snack when you're not in a hurry if it's a snack um it would definitely be a toast based meal like getting some nice bread and toasting it and then putting some spreads on there with some you know, avocado and tomato and cracked pepper and you know, maybe some capsicum or something. So yeah, I think the toaster is is probably the next. If I've got a bit more time, I'm I'm sort of heading towards that sort of corner of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Got it. Uh, what's your favorite post race meal or snack? Usually, I mean, I'm not that fussy. I mean, I'm generally wouldn't consider myself a fussy eater. Um, and it depends so much on where, what country you're in, but almost always post race is something hot um mm. often often we haven't had any hot food and so you just feel i don't know it's just something about the te- it's obviously temperature based but it may be because hot food is generally always savory um but yeah like it can be anything if it's hot it just feels amazing um hot I pizza hot, hot soup hot chips hot you know whatever it is you can ha- happen to find it just this is something about the um yeah, having a hot food, hot food after a, bit, a big race mm-hmm. is what we go looking for. What's the most bizarre or exotic food that you've ever tried? Oh, I've been some. I've sort of done the usual stuff in the usual countries you'd expect. You know, the whole the frogs' legs and the um, snails and kangaroo mm-hmm. and different things. But there was one race we did in Kazakhstan, which was in sort of Central Asia. It used to be part of Russia, and we came across these goat herders and they had this pot of soup on a fire and they gave us some bread and um, and uh, we were, they were giving us some soup and we couldn't speak the language, but we, they kind of figured out that we looked hungry and we, we, we could see they were having this quite nice soup. And um, they asked us if we wanted some more soup. They were trying to trade some cigarettes off us, but we took us a while to kind of explain <laughs> to them that we didn't have cigarettes with us. But um, they, and then when they took the pot off the the lid off the pot on their fire, it was a beautiful looking soup. But um, what was sitting in the middle of the soup was a goat's head. Oh so God! Was, um, <laughs> yeah, I was kind of, yeah, maybe just a little bit more. That'll be fine. We'll be the best get going. Thank you. <laughs>
Oh my. What is your favorite beverage? Oh, it would have to be coffee. I'm, oh, that's my, my that's my kind of that's my drug. I think that I probably replaced everything else with. So I'm just a very strong black coffee. No, no additives in it. That's my go-to sort of drink. Mm. What is your comfort food? What reminds you of growing up? Oh, yeah. I'm not really sure if there's anything particularly. I mean, I I think. Um, you know, a lot of the seasonal fruits around around where I, I grow up, they remind me a lot of the past because we'd often go and pick pick berries and season and different things. So this time of year when all the seasonal fruits, summer fruits are coming out, that that definitely reminds me a lot of, of sort of growing up in the region, you know, going out and picking berries and getting yelled at by the orchard workers not to eat berries while we're picking them. <laughs> I am definitely guilty of doing that whenever I pick berries. Um, yeah. What is your... What is your favorite sweet or other indulgence? Uh, favorite sweet, without a doubt, would, would, would be ice cream for me. Like, um, yeah, I've got a bit of a weakness for ice cream in the summertime. You know, so, uh, yeah. Any favorite flavor? I think if I was to say one, if I had to pick one, I'd probably pick dark chocolate. I mean, I'd, I'd, the flavors for me can vary. I'm not that fussy with ice cream, but... I think if I if I had to kind of stick with one, I'd probably go with a, a nice dark chocolate ice cream. Awesome. And I think yeah. this question is probably going to be the hardest for you of all the guests I've asked, because I have seen your gear shed that you did a little yeah. film kind of tour of, and it's practically the entire yeah. sporting goods store in there. So this is going to be a tough one. But yeah. what are your top three items of gear that are most essential to your active lifestyle? Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting that when you think about that. I, for all the things that we do and for all the gear we've got and the different kind of outdoor toys, you know, I honestly think if if uh, if the government implemented a rule and said, right, from now on, each citizen is only allowed to do one sport and you have to get rid of everything else you've got, the, the one thing that I would keep in the shed would be my hiking gear. Like there's something I really love about just traveling in the mountains with all, everything you need on your back and that'll just be my backpack and my hiking gear and um you know I just I think the simplicity of just moving through the countryside you're carrying your food you're sourcing your own water you're cooking on fires you're sleeping on the ground like I I just love that simplicity and I think out of all the things that I do you know all the gadgets and cool stuff that you know technology's enabled us with you know the one thing that I'd probably treasure the most is um is just the simple thing of hiking. So, so definitely hiking gear would be would be something um, that I'd consider pretty essential to my to my life going forward. I think a mat is um, is pretty important as well. Like I, I have this kind of theory that there's an adventure on every map. So it doesn't really matter what map you've got. You know, there's a, there's, there's just untold sort of adventures awaiting within that map, wherever the map is. And um, so, so maps, I think, for me, are, are really essential things because they are kind of the passport, really, to adventure. And um, and then I think the third thing would be, you know, I am a real ocean person, so I would have to keep one of my ocean toys, which would probably be be my ocean surf ski, my, uh, my which I mainly paddle. It's the thing I paddle the most. Mm, so, um, awesome. 
Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, that is so awesome. And you, of course, like you actually partially own a, a freeze dried food company, Absolute Wilderness Meals. Is Are you still involved in that? Yeah, more so, actually. Um, four of us started the company. And then earlier this year, two, two of the partners wanted to get out and go and do other things. So just two of us own that company now. And, oh, amazing. Um, and yeah, and coincidentally, just today, just this morning, actually, we just officially um, have finished our kind of planning. So we actually shut the company for a couple of months, just the two of us, since we took it over and have just spent a couple of months just strategizing and figuring out a good way to go forward. And, and literally just this morning, my business partner sent an email and just said, yep, he agrees with um, with all with everything that we've got planned, so we're just about to push push go again and and get it get it cranked up and happening and get get meals out there for the Kiwi Kiwi summer. That's awesome. Can you get this stuff in the states, or is it only available in New Zealand? No, it's only available in New Zealand. Oh, we're, darn. we're small, so um, so we're just supplying the New Zealand market. Uh, I do it. think we have an exportable product though. Like I think what we're doing is quite unique in the whole world of freeze dry freeze dry meals, and I mm-hmm. think our product. Um, would be would be appreciated by by um, a sector of US uh, outdoors people, but we're still really small in terms of our capacity to produce meals. And the other thing is is that exporting food from New Zealand from New Zealand is very difficult as well. Oh, New Zealand's yeah. very very fussy about um, protecting the New Zealand brand. So whatever goes offshore from here branded New Zealand has to be um, pretty exceptional and, and I, I think we can achieve that but it just it's a process that that and, until we're bigger it doesn't really make any economic sense sure sure no i was just picturing you guys having a little you know a little um section of rei or something like i don't know if you know rei it's like a really big yeah, yeah, yeah. store yeah. yeah you know yeah you know because yeah. they're all like the you know the through packer hikers, you know, all the people go camping, whatever. And I was watching a little video of like how you rehydrate the food and you can use it with cold water. And, and it was like a chili con carne. I'm like, Oh, that sounds quite delightful. <laughs> Especially if you have hot water. Um, yeah. So I, I bet there would be a good market for it out here. Um, but anyways, I have taken up so much of your time, Nathan, thank you so, so, so much for coming on and talking about pretty much everything and giving your life story, which I asked for. So I know it was probably more than you signed up for. So <laughs> thank oh, that's you. Right. Fun. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And good luck in God's zone. And I hope that it, again, it happens. And, um, if, and when Patagonia happens, I really hope to, to see you out on the show and out in the course. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Hopefully we'll be there in some shape or form. So yeah, we'll see see what happens in that space. But um yeah, that's no, a funny world right now. So uh yeah, we'll find out, I guess, as time goes on how things go. So um yeah, all the best for your uh, your winter over there. Thank you so much. Have a good one, stay safe. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Clea. And that's our show for today. I hope you enjoyed that one. Again, it was a really long one, but I just could not stop asking him questions. (laughs) He's so fascinating. He has so much incredible information and advice to share and just experience. It was a real pleasure talking with him. So thank you again, Nathan, for your generous time and for being such an inspiration to us all. Really hoping to see you in Patagonia on the television. 
Anyways, uh, as always, if you want to get in touch, please do eat for endurance at gmail.com. You can visit my website, hit me up on Instagram, wherever you would like. I'd love to hear from you. And of course, if you haven't already, please rate and review this podcast on iTunes, spread the word. I want to get this out to everybody who is interested in endurance and nutrition and all this good stuff. Until next time, see you later, guys.